Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. From that first grunt, singer James Brown cemented his status as the godfather of soul. It was 1968, a time of political unrest and burgeoning racial achievement. And this earworm refrain had a beat and a message. The refrain that married Brown's signature funk sound with the rising tide of racial pride among 60s Afro and dashiki-wearing black Americans. All that came together in 1968, just 14 years after the landmark Brown versus Board of Education declared segregation unconstitutional. Alfred P. Wee Ellis composed and arranged the music in a flash of genius at 3 a.m. It was recorded just four months after Martin Luther King's assassination and reflected the shifting politics of black Americans. The song moved many to identify as black instead of Negro. Say It Loud became known as the unofficial anthem for the nascent black power movement. Ironic, given Brown's conservative personal politics and support for Republicans like Richard Nixon. Brown may seem like an unlikely champion of nationalistic sentiment, but many of his hit records spoke truth to power. I worked on jobs with my in my hand. You know, all the work I did was for the other man. Somehow, I've never relegated this song to the dusty bins of history. It doesn't seem old even though it was recorded 50 years ago tomorrow. And when I hear it, I still feel the sense of pride Brown hoped to convey. All that and you can dance to it, what's not to like? Brown was emphatic that the song was not anti-white, but positively black. At many of his performances, whites joined in singing the chorus. But most of all, James Brown wanted this song to speak to the future, a future he wanted for the next generation, far from his own desperately poor and emotionally damaged childhood. Years later, he would designate a significant part of his estate to fund childhood education for poor children. 
That's why, for me, the most important part of the lyrics is the catchy refrain sung by 30 children. No one is quite sure how Brown's manager, Charles Bobbitt, scoured the black section of Los Angeles's Watts neighborhood for these children, who ended up in a middle-of-the-night recording session. But it's their full-throated enthusiasm, which I believe elevated the song. One more time. Say It Loud was number one on the R&B singles chart for six weeks and rose to number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. It is listed in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame among 500 songs that shaped rock and roll and on Rolling Stone magazine's list of 500 greatest songs of all time. It remains a powerful legacy for an artist and a musical moment of pride for a community a signature part of the soundtrack of 1968. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR. I heard people talk about anger on, on the Saturday program, and then I was just thinking about that incident. And um, what I've been doing since that day, is listening to um, specific music like uh, Fela Kuti or Bob Marley. I might listen to um, old, old programs of Dr. Wilson, uh Neely Fuller, uh, The Cows. Um, and also, I've been listening to motivational speakers. I think one is called, uh, one of the guys is Eric Thomas, a black guy, and another guy, a black guy is uh, Les Brown. And that's been helping me out a lot. Um, like, they, they still make, like, jungle noises and do weird things. But everything that I've been doing, um, and then along with um, working out, thanks to Emmy, I started working out Exercise again. Exercise is good for your mental health. Most people are aware of that fact, but researchers have now been able to put a much more precise figure on how much and how often. But it's a balance, overdo it. And it could have a negative effect. Dr. Sami Chekroud, one of the authors of the report, told Dan Damon more. We've got the biggest study to date looking at 1.2 million people and found that people who exercised on average experienced 40% better mental health than people who didn't exercise. And like you said, there, the, there was this really, really cool finding of a kind of sweet spot. So we found that people who exercised for three to five times each week for about 45 minutes each time found the best benefit for their mental health. How do you demonstrate, how do you measure, indeed, better mental health? You said 40% improvement in mental health. How, how yeah. do you measure that and what's it mean? Yeah, so it's a great question. And so the data we looked at is from a big survey collected by the U.S. government as part of the, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And they run this really huge telephone survey. And more specifically, people answered a question where they were asked to reflect on their mental health. So it's quite an all-encompassing question. And, and asked to report how many days bad mental health they had when thinking about their mood, their stress, their anxiety, or emotional problems. So the question they actually answered and the, the report that they gave really encompassed their perceived experience of life and their, into their, and their insight into their mental health at that time. And 45 minutes, three to five times a week. And we're not talking about running marathons, are we? This is exercise, including 
brisk walking, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's fantastic. So we found that although there are that some sports are better than others. So we found popular sports, so the kind of team sports that you would play at school, like football, um, lacrosse, netball, that kind of thing, were associated with the best mental health benefit. But we also found a really good mental health benefit for solo sports, like cycling, like running, and even things that you might not think are that great for physical exercise. So Indeed, people who exercise, who just walked, for example, three to five times a week, um, also saw a really good benefit for their mental health. But what you also identified is that you can stretch yourself out if you do too much of this kind of thing. Explain that. Yeah, so another great feature of, of how large our data set is, is that we can really look at the kind of intricacies of these patterns. And so we found that as people got towards the extremes of exercise, in, so over-exercising um, over five times a week, actually their mental health was worse than people who exercised either three to five times a week or compared to not exercising at all indeed so it definitely suggests that too much could be a bad thing for your mental health but there are a few things that kind of can make this a bit more complicated dr sammy check around it's the nation's capital it's washington dc it's the nation's capital it's the nation's capital In many urban areas across the country, there are food deserts, areas with a lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables. But as Maryland and Washington, D.C. teams from our student reporting labs noticed, a cooperative of high school students in D.C. is aiming to change that. It's part of our weekly education series, Making the Grade, and it's reported by 18-year-old Kevin Broom. These students are learning how to grow vegetables and other edible plants. Rasha Ryder is a 12th grader at Eastern Senior High School. So one day I was going to soccer practices. I was just walking by the greenhouse and I was like, oh my God, what is that beautiful, magnificent thing, like greenhouse over there? And like the sun was just radiating. It was just like, oh. <laughs> and so basically I just peeked my head in the door. I was like, so what is this? And they were like, you know, this is Mighty Greens. <laughs> Mighty Greens is a youth-led cooperative whose mission is to improve Washington, D.C.'s access to healthy food and food education. D.C. is a food desert, so that basically means that people in D.C. have a hard time having access to food, whether it's a grocery store not being close enough to them or transportation to that grocery store. According to D.C. Hunger Solutions, Every day in the District of Columbia, nearly one out of seven households struggles to buy nutritionally adequate and safe food. Camila Owens is an 11th grader at Eastern Senior High School. I help people in my community learn how to grow vegetables or even learn how to eat healthy with the vegetables. One day maybe our city could not be a food desert. So you've done the transplanting once before? Yeah. Marco Roth is an educator for City Blossoms, a DC-based nonprofit organization that helps Mighty Greens operate. It's really about creating a space where students can connect with themselves, with each other, and with the world around them. Last year, Mighty Greens harvested over 1,200 pounds of food and is hoping to surpass that this year. About 50% of our produce gets sold, about 25% gets donated to our partners, and then 25% gets taken home by students or used for on-site recipes. It's really important within this work that the students know that they're growing food for themselves. 
Students also develop entrepreneurial skills by creating products and selling them at farmer's markets. We have two herb salts. One is called Herbs of Eastern, which has um, kosher salt thyme, oregano, and rosemary. And we make it by dehydrating all the herbs we get out the garden and then mixing it with salt, equal parts each. The customers are like, oh, this is really cool. Like, and then you're like, oh my, that's, that's really good. Like, you feel really good about it. This program equips students with critical life skills and gives them confidence beyond the classroom. People in high school, if they had like a program where they could go to and learn how to do a business, they would be able to like understand those things that you don't learn in school. I feel like if I didn't join this, I wouldn't be the person I am today. For the PBS NewsHour Student Reporting Labs, I'm Kevin Broom in Washington, D.C. Come here, Susie. You remember me? Your daddy's friend, Henry? I... I... No, don't! In an horrific child abuse case in Germany, a woman and her partner have been jailed for selling her young son to paedophiles. The couple sold the young boy using the dark web, the hidden parts of the internet not covered by search engines. They were arrested last year along with six other men after a tip-off. People in Germany are now demanding to know how the mother's boyfriend, a convicted paedophile was allowed to live in the family home. Our correspondent in Berlin, Jenny Hill, told us more about the case. It's shocked even the experienced investigators who say, you know, they were really taken aback by the severity of the case. Um, over a two-year period, the boy, who's now 10 years old, was raped and abused by his own mother and her boyfriend in the family home, um, but he was also sold by the pair on the so-called dark net to strangers for sex. Um, prosecutors estimate that the boy was subjected to more than 60 serious attacks. Many of those sex attacks were filmed. Um, you can imagine the, the horror that this has caused here in Germany. Um, not least, actually, because it's emerged that the authorities were aware that the mother's boyfriend um, was a convicted paedophile um, who had continued, actually, to live in the family home despite a court order to, to the contrary. So a lot of questions for the authorities authorities about whether this boy could have been better protected. And as you touched on there, the authorities being aware, but this move from it beginning in the home to spreading to, to a much wider international network of abuse... Yeah, that's right. In fact, a number of other men have been convicted in relation to this case. Um, a couple of days ago, a Spanish man actually was sentenced to 10 years in jail for his part in the attacks. Um, so as you say, you know, not only was this boy being seriously abused behind the closed doors of the family home. Um, actually, he was being prostituted out on an international stage, um, uh, almost part of a ring. So, yes, you're, you're quite right. The abuse was, was much, much more widespread than perhaps initially thought. And as I say, those looking into this um, say it's one of the most severe cases they've, they've ever had to look at. And um, it's worth pointing out too, actually, that there was another victim, a three-year-old girl um, from the family circle of acquaintances. The pair, the mother and the boyfriend, have actually had to pay um, not only €30,000 to, to the little boy, um, they've also had to pay €12,000 in damages to the little girl who was also sexually abused at their hands. But considering the severity of this case, that all seems rather small and the sentence of 12 years seems relatively short. 
Yeah, perhaps on the face of it, it does. But I, I mean, these are these are sentences which are recognised, of course, within German law. And um, perhaps it'll interest you to learn that the the prosecution, in fact, only called for a 14-year jail sentence in the mother's case. Um, so these are pretty hefty sentences, actually, by by German standards. Um, and it's also worth pointing out, actually, that the the boyfriend um, has been sentenced to 12 years in prison. But after that, he will be detained until he is deemed not to be a risk to, to children anymore. So, so that is a considerable um, sentence, certainly in his case, by, by German standards. Jenny Hill in Berlin. And uh, what do we call this thing? It is called a jolly niggerbank. Ain't that something? And it's not a repro. It's circa turn of the century. Thank you, I guess. I thought it was appropriate. And is that good or bad? Well, I've had a brand new successful show, so you'll be going to the bank. Plus, I love these black collectibles. Really? How so? It reminds me of a time in our history in this country when we were considered inferior, subhuman, and we should never forget. Don't you try, Pierre? We're about to meet a man who's been collecting black Americana for most of his life, and he wants to share it with others. The items he's amassed actually used to be in a museum he ran in L.A.'s Crenshaw neighborhood. Now they're all housed on his property, which is the next stop in our summer road trip collaboration with Atlas Obscura co-founder Dylan Thuris. I'm in the California desert, about two hours north of L.A. It's a barren landscape of power lines and solar farms. Directly in front of me is a shipping container. These are called high cubes because they're nine foot high and they're 45 foot long. We're in Oranzi's backyard and he's struggling to get the container open. I love it. You know, this is my stuff. So in the back, we've got uh, jute boxes, the first lady. It's a wax Michelle Obama. Here's Michelle. Wrapped in bubble wrap. They're just some of the remnants from Oranzi's Pan-African Black Facts and Wax Museum. That's facts as in a piece of information, and wax as in a wax Michelle Obama, or a wax Michael Jackson, Tiger Woods. You get the idea. Like this is an artifact. <laughs> there are African masks, furniture. Hey, here's a Dreamgirls poster, autographed. It's piled to the top with stuff. And this shipping container? It's just one of nine. The very last container there has got most of the albums, probably 100 black mannequins, and that one. And this one here is more art, but it's not as organized as this, but it's somewhat organized. And then Oranzi leads me into his house. Oh, wow. His living room is filled floor to ceiling. There are postcards, cereal boxes, instruments. Looking at all of it, I ask Oranzi, how many objects he thought he had? Over three million. Three million objects. Most of them baking in the desert sun. Oran is 67 now, but this all started when he was in his mid-20s living in Omaha, Nebraska. And it started with one very special object. It was a book about the life of self-made black millionaire, Madam C.J. Walker. She became my um, imaginary mother. Oran read about how Walker made her fortune in the early 1900s, creating hair care and beauty products for the black community. Her story set Oran on the two major paths of his life. One, to collect objects that showcased black achievement. And two, 
to make his own fortune in black hair care. He did it in the early 1980s by creating a new product for bonding hair extensions. I could go in with my bonding lotion and get it to stick, or just twisting it on, and it would go. At the time, it was revolutionary. It was the start of Oran's hair empire. And the money it brought in, Oran poured it into collecting. I started collecting anything and everything for blacks, against blacks, by blacks. It meant collecting objects that represented the history of American racism. Sambo figures and mammy cookie jars. The first thing that I actually remembered that I said, okay, this is going to make me start collecting, was a calendar. And on this calendar was this picture of this little baby drinking out of an ink bottle. And the caption was the N-word milk. It was funny. And then I started crying. Oran wanted visitors to his former museum to have that same experience, to reckon with these racist objects. But he also wanted to show kids in the neighborhood black success stories. They'd be like rapping about kicking somebody, beating a woman, selling some drugs. And then would leave the museum talking about, we're going to write about Harriet Tubman. We're going to write about Madam C.J. Walker. He displayed the patents of black inventors, stamps featuring black Americans. The museum was a community hub. They threw parties. They even had a small radio station. So what happened? As Oran tells it, one by one, the businesses in the area closed down driven out in part by a three-decade-long redevelopment project known as Marlton Square. At one time, that Crenshaw Corridor, that used to be the hub of black business, is, is almost like a, a destruction of the culture. In 2012, Oran packed up the museum and moved to the desert. Since then, he's been looking to find a permanent home for the collection. He's even willing to give parts of the collection away to the right institutions. The need is more urgent than ever. I have got stage four prostate cancer and I've had it for 11 years. Now, why am I still alive? So this is one of the reasons why I'm trying, I'm hoping that somebody starts to take interest in some of this stuff. I spent six hours with Oren Z. Every object he showed me came with a story. We got to do better. We got to preserve the whole story. And if you can't see it, it don't exist. He hopes the desert air We'll preserve the collection until more people can see it. For NPR News, I'm Dylan Thuris in Del Sur, California. I'm going to practice this right now. This is what I like to call black jokes. Are you guys ready for some black jokes? Yeah! All right, black jokes. Here we go. So you heard the old saying, once you go black, you're a single mother. <laughs> Boy! You like that? You like that? <laughs> I got more black jokes. You want more black jokes? Yeah. All right. There's another way to look at the gap between how we portray ourselves online and who we really are. Author and data scientist Seth Stevens Davidowitz has studied years worth of Google search data, looking for insights into human behavior. He joins us now to talk about what Google knows and what social media may not. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Tell me what it is about the act of Googling that elicits perhaps the truest versions of ourselves. Well, I think uh, one reason is people are online by themselves. All the data is anonymous. Their friends aren't seeing what they search on Google. They are seeing what they post on Facebook. 
Google also gives you an incentive to tell the truth to get the information you need. So you kind of have to tell Google what you're thinking if you want the results. Give an example of what you found when you've been looking through Google search data. My favorite example is I compared uh, how people describe their husbands on social media and on Google when they're not telling anybody. The number one way they complete the phrase "my husband is" on social media is "my husband is the best." I wanted to see if that's an accurate view of marriage. I looked when people are by themselves and they're not showing off to their friends. What do they search about their husbands on Google? And, and it's a totally different view of marriage.、Uh, it's my husband is a jerk, so annoying, mean, <laughs> obnoxious,、uh, cheating on me. And you look at the specific post. My husband is dot dot dot. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So how are you getting this data from Google? The tool I use is Google Trends, and it says kind of where and when searches are more common. What about? Racism. When you're hunting through this Google data, do you have a very different portrait of how much of America would be self-identifying as racist than what people portray themselves like online? Sometimes you just find amusing things about people, but sometimes you do find disturbing facts about people. And one of the more disturbing things I found was the degree of racism in the United States. When I initially started doing the research, I was pretty shocked. By how many people search for racist jokes? I got more black jokes. You want more black jokes?、Yeah. All right.、Uh, and most of that is for、huh. jokes mocking African Americans, and it's searching great frequency, as frequently as searches for you know Lakers or economists or migrants. Wow! Hey, yo, drama. Hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record.、Right. I want you to pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back.、Uh, and most of that is for、huh. jokes mocking African Americans, and it's searching great frequency as frequently as searches for you know Lakers or economists or migraine. You start at the premise that when people are googling, that they are mining for answers, they're revealing a truth about themselves. But I know that as a journalist, I conduct a lot of Google searches that have really nothing to do with my personal motivations. I mean, if I'm googling ISIS, it's because I may be writing a story about ISIS. It's not because I'm a terrorist. So, do you account for that? That some Google searches are "quote unquote" innocent. You never know why a particular person makes a Google search. I certainly made. A lot of racist searches. Doing the research for my book, I don't consider myself a racist person, but the data I used is anonymous and aggregate, and tends to、uh, tell us about areas and time periods. And I think the lessons there are much clearer. What can we do with this data? I mean, besides being able to reveal uncomfortable truths about ourselves, I'm actually working on an article now about suicide in the United States and what causes people to become suicidal. And you can actually see. What people search for before they search for suicide. One of the most common diseases that triggers a suicidal search is herpes,、really? uh, which shocked me. And I think that, to me, is really kind of a profound insight into the human psyche. And it tends to be younger、uh, people, and、uh, you know, definitely should be、uh, incorporated in how doctors tell someone that they have herpes, or how schools teach kids about these STDs, and make sure that that the stigma of this illness. Which is not life-threatening at all doesn't drive people to think of suicide. Seth Stevens Davidowitz is the author of Everybody Lies: Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it. 
I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will. Before God, I swear this creed. My rifle and myself are defenders of my country. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the saviors of my life. So be it, until there is no enemy. But peace, amen. This is St. Louis Public Radio. Ladies' Night at Sharpshooters Pit and Grill welcomed dozens of new clients to the Afton business recently, women of color, some of whom are gun owners, others first-time shooters. For Sharing America, St. Louis Public Radio's Ashley Lissenby talks to women who may not fit the stereotype of who owns a gun. A warning to listeners, this piece does contain the sounds of gunshots. Black women are firing at targets on almost every lane at the range. Range manager Wade the Pro tells one woman and her son how to correctly stand and hold a pistol. In the lobby, event organizer Ohun Ashe says she thought the activity would be a good way to help women of color understand firearms. Often we don't get the same protection and we don't know how to protect ourselves. So I thought it was really important for black women, women of color, to come together and have this experience together while also uh, building community. Trish Foster is one of hundreds of people who showed interest in the event on social media. And I saw it online on Facebook, and um, it said it was pretty much empowering black females, so I thought I would try and check it out. Is this your first time shooting? It is my first time shooting. Nervous, but excited. Trinika Reed is a first-timer, too. She recently bought a gun. It's with a lot of things that's going on. I had someone try to steal my car, so I know. So it's like, it's serious now. So at least let me try to protect myself as much as possible. So For you, it's more of a safety thing. Yes, I'm almost scared. So Latanya Shields is not. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid with it or without it. Unlike some of the other women, she says she was there to blow off some steam. I purchased a firearm, but I think it's important to know how to use it. And so this is just a perfect night to come out with a bunch of girls and be comfortable and be comfortable with the gun. She says she prays she will never have to use her gun. I ask her if she thinks people would associate gun ownership with black women. No, I don't think so at all. I think I'm the only one in my circle that owns a gun as a black woman. I don't think that's anything. I think gun ownership is a personal choice and doesn't have anything to do with sex or gender. But data show there is a gap in gun ownership along race and gender lines. The Pew Research Center finds a quarter of black people say they own guns compared to a third of whites. The number of women who own guns is significantly less than men. Pew researchers say their work only identifies the gaps. It does not explain why they exist. The research does show, though, differences in perceptions about firearms among black and white people. Black people report more often personally being threatened with a gun or knowing someone who has been shot. There is a consensus among the two racial groups in the Pew's research showing gun owners in the U.S. are more likely to say they own a firearm for protection rather than recreation. Tamika Brown might be an exception. She comes to the shooting range with her husband all the time. She waits in line to get her ID to leave with a target practice sheet in hand. How did it go today? Great. It went great. Like, I want to do it again, but I think I'm going to pass and come back next Thursday. Can I see your... uh... What is it called? I guess a target. Yeah. <laughs> Brown holds up her target sheet, riddled with bullet holes. So I don't know what the, any of this means. Is that good? <laughs> uh, I'm assuming, well, it's better than what I used to be. 
So yeah, it's pretty good. I got like this one is like eyes. yeah, dead on in the center. Yeah, it's real good. <laughs> Brown's interest in guns does not necessarily reflect the national dialogue around guns and gun ownership, a conversation that often varies after tragic events. Regardless of the reasons for going to the shooting range, these women seem to be there to gain a sense of empowerment. For Sharing America, I'm Ashley Lissenby, St. Louis Public Radio. by the name of Lauren Cutshaw was uh, pulled over in South Carolina. She was drink, uh, driving under the influence. She actually went through a stop sign going 60 miles per hour. Now, uh, when she was pulled over, she told officers that she had perfect grades her whole life, was a cheerleader and sorority girl, and graduated from a, quote, high accredited university and that her partner was a police officer. In other words, let me go. I'm a good person. She also stated to this white police officer, quote, that she is a clean, thoroughbred white girl. White girl. Wow. And to the cop's credit, he's like, yeah, yeah let's wrap this up. You're going to jail. Uh, she also had possession of marijuana, and uh, her blood alcohol level was registered at 0.18%. 0.08 is against the law. That is way past that, even for a thoroughbred. <laughs> Who led her out of the stable? Um, okay. So um, I like how she was leading up to, like, look, hey, my uh, boyfriend's a cop. Is what She should have stopped. Yeah, that might have worked. Yeah, that might have worked some of the time, right? right? Um, but uh, going to, like, I went to a highly accredited university is not something that it's going to work a lot with cops. She's watching too many Trump speeches. Right. I and went to the best university, I, I, biggest I, I, university. I have the best accreditations. They're so strong. And anyway, uh, so basically what she was trying to get at with all that stuff is like, I'm a good white person. Yeah. But since she's, one, not very stable genius, and two, really drunk, yeah. right? She's like, oh, fine, I'm just going to say it. I'm white. I'm white, okay? I don't know if you can tell, yeah. but I'm a thoroughbred white girl. Let me off. By the way, I, I love I love this cop. He did the right thing. He, uh, she, he apparently was like, what are you talking about? And she said, you're a cop. You should know what that means. Oh, that's How so much worse. Yeah. Like, you're a cop. You must be racist like me. <laughs> right? Jeez. Let me off. Apparently, wrong again. California. The police department in Oakland, California, has been under federal oversight now for more than 15 years, stemming from a police abuse and racial profiling scandal. In that negotiated settlement, the city agreed to sweeping reforms, including to better track all stops and to eliminate discriminatory policing. But as NPR's Eric Westervelt reports, there's mounting frustration that better data collection still has not led to real change. For the last few years, Stanford University researchers have helped the Oakland police understand the information officers collect during every police stop and arrest on the streets here in Oakland. The researchers showed that Oakland officers are far more likely to stop, search, and even handcuff black people than white people during a traffic or pedestrian stop. And their analysis of body cam footage showed that during traffic stops, officers spoke less respectfully to black motorists than whites. Oakland's police chief, Ann Kirkpatrick, says these studies by Stanford psychology professor Jennifer Eberhardt have proved invaluable. A lot of agencies collect data, but we have gone and worked with Stanford to say, 
Teach us how to ask the questions of that data. Teach us how to think. I want a change of how we think about policing. And when you think differently, you're going to have culture change. But what the police chief and the city's mayor had hoped would become a national model for a data-driven reduction in racially biased policing has become the latest flashpoint for Oakland's troubled department. Activist residents and some local politicians protested the recent renewal of the Stanford professor's half-million-dollar two-year contract. But I don't understand why she needs to come back and ask for more money. Kathy Leonard is the founder of Oakland Neighborhoods for Equity. She says the police seem in love with big data and stuck on a hamster wheel of collection and analysis, a system, she says, that hasn't worked to reduce racially biased police stops, a key part of the federal settlement some 15 years ago. Black people are being forced out of the city of Oakland due to gentrification and other, and other matters, and yet the police are still stopping black men at exponential rates. The only thing that can, be, that can be explained by is racism, pure and simple. Oakland City Councilwoman Desley Brooks also questions why the police chief needs an outside consultant to interpret data and help make policy when neither the chief nor the professor have been able to move the needle on an issue they were hired to help fix. The reality is that if you are the one that is stopped, when there is no reason for you to be stopped except for the color of your skin, That is unacceptable. You know that it takes away a part of your dignity. The mayor said it, the chief of police said it, Dr. Everhart has said it. Racial profiling is unacceptable. Then why haven't you came up with anything that addresses racial profiling? In some recent months, the percentage of blacks who were stopped went up. Stanford professor Everhart declined to comment. I asked Police Chief Kirkpatrick about the latest numbers. We have reduced the actual number of contacts Mm -hmm. of people by almost 50%. But why can't you reduce the number of African Americans in the stops you are making? Right. So we're starting first with the footprint. We still know that it's disproportionate and that it's that disparity, that lack of equity that is now the target. Kirkpatrick says the department has reduced officer use of force and traffic stops for minor mechanical problems, stops that turned out to be racially biased and provocative. And the chief, who was hired less than two years ago, cautions that data-driven change takes time. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Oakland, California. Oh, shit, don't tell me my niggas got lost in time. My niggas are dying before their time. My niggas are serving unjust time. And in New York, the right to a fair and speedy trial can sometimes seem like a fantasy and not a constitutional right. In 2016, the average amount of time between arraignment and a non-jury trial in misdemeanor cases was well over a year. District attorneys and judges often blame an overburdened court system, but a new investigation shows that it's often the prosecutors themselves that are slowing things down on purpose. Reporters at the criminal justice publication The Reveal obtained training documents from the Bronx District Attorney's Office, and those documents show the Bronx prosecutors are being taught courtroom techniques with the explicit goal of stretching out cases. With me now are two of those reporters who broke the story from the appeal and at the reveal, uh, George Joseph and Simon David Cohen. And joining them also is Tom O'Brien. He is a staff attorney with Legal Aid's criminal special litigation unit. Thank you all for coming on, coming in, and welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
So, Simon, the right to a fair and speedy trial enshrined in our Sixth Amendment, amendment uh, but what, is that, what that actually means apparently differs from state to state. So what does New York State's law say about that? How much time is allowed to pass before a defendant gets a trial? Well, it depends on what they're being charged with. But what's unique about New York is that the, the state law is not pegged to when the trial actually starts but to when the prosecutor is ready for trial. So if the prosecutor says, oh, I'm ready for trial, then under state law in New York, theoretically, the defendant's right to a speedy trial is being um, upholded. But because it's pegged to what prosecutors say, it opens the door for all these loopholes for them to exploit to extend the trial and delay and delay. So, like, if you were being charged with some offense like graffiti, for example, mm-hmm. like, how much time, like, when should you have your trial? So, in misdemeanor cases, I think graffiti's a class A or B, I forget which one, but misdemeanor cases are supposed to go to trial in 60 or 90 days, depending on the misdemeanor. Unless the prosecutor says, hold on, I'm not really prepared to go to trial, give me more time. Or unless they say, oh, we're... Yes, yes. Okay. Um, And then, Tom, as someone who spends a lot of time in courtrooms, talk us through this. Like, at the arraignment, which is basically the first court appearance that happens after an arrest, it's supposed to happen 24 hours after an arrest. And at the arraignment, a prosecutor is asked whether they are ready. What does that mean? Actually, they're not asked. In in the Bronx, they usually say, people ready, and then they move on to something else. So it's they don't want to make it an issue because... The idea of being ready to conduct a trial on that day, the first day of the case, a defendant has just been arrested, is so implausible, uh, they don't really want to pause to get some type of uh, challenge or questions from the judge. So by saying people ready, the, the speedy trial clock stops. And so if they are then not ready, as they very often are, as the case proceeds, they can they then consider theoretically in post ready posture, and then if they ask for two days, they get two days, knowing very well that you know the judge with the crowded calendar is going to put the case over for for two months. You know the two months isn't calculated as part of speedy trial time; just the two days is, and so that's how someone like uh, Khalif Browder could spend three years in jail, uh, you know, without the speedy trial clock you know, being reached so that he would be entitled for release because they did this constant repetition of people not ready, request one week, getting two months. And so the the, the person is either sitting in jail or the person, you know, has to keep coming back to court. Um, but the speedy trial clock is is not adding any time in that person's favor. So Okay, and we can get a little bit to the Khalif Browder connection in a, in a second, but I just want to understand it's basically the minute you say no, I'm not ready, it resets the clock on the speedy trial, on your right to a speedy trial. Well, when they say not ready, it should be resetting the clock, and so, you know, they sh- they should be charged with the time and the clock should be moving so that if they're not ready again, then they're approaching the limit. And the case would either have to be tried or dismissed. Okay. But by having stated not ready on the first day, having stated ready on the first day of the case, that's not happening. They're only charged with the time they request, which they know and are taught in, in this PowerPoint to ask for the smallest amount of time 
And let's talk about this PowerPoint. George, the appeal obtained training documents in a PowerPoint presentation from the attorney attorney general's office in the Bronx. Can you describe to us what was on those slides and what did they reveal to you about how prosecutors are manipulating the readiness rule uh, in order to delay trials? Sure. So the documents the appeal obtained were from last year, and they show that first-year prosecutors are being taught um, deliberately to claim that they're ready at arraignments, um, not necessarily because they're always ready in every single situation, but with the explicit goal to stop the speedy trial clock. Um, That seems to be their goal above all else. And in the documents, in fact, the prosecutor's office calls the speedy trial law the bane of our existence, which suggests a very adversarial position from the Bronx DA's office towards defendants' uh, speedy trial rights in New York State. One of the presentation slides literally says, Mm -hmm. our goal to stop the clock. Yes, exactly. Why is it the bane of their existence? Like, especially if they can just ask for more time. Well, in the Bronx and in other jurisdictions, prosecutors are juggling fairly large caseloads often. Um, For example, one former Bronx prosecutor told us, I had to have 90 cases going on at the same time. Now, people could argue about whether they should be having that many cases in the first place. But if you are a prosecutor and your supervisor is expecting you to carry such a large workload, you want to try to delay and buy as much time for every case as you can because there's no way you could actually get to all those cases in a deliberate um, speed. But then the question becomes, well, what about the defendant's rights to have a speedy trial if these structural impositions are, are encouraging and incentivizing prosecutors to delay their cases. So, Tom, were you surprised to see the intention of how to manipulate readiness spelled out so explicitly in a training manual? Like, what, what did you think when you saw this? What I, was, I was surprised that they would put it in black and white like that. Um, but given that we see what they do, they're, they're saying ready in case after case on the first day of the case. And so that's not surprising that they would have been taught to do that. So I think this the part of the problem there is I think it's degrading to the system because these these are people who who studied professional responsibility that there's a test they have to take in law school, you know, to to show they're up on legal ethics and then, you know, their their first job, there they're being told you have to say this this and this regardless of whether it's true, but that's the way we do things. So I mean that that's that's a uh, that's a real problem there for what it's doing to young lawyers. Meaning, so okay, so you say it's unethical to do this. Is it legal to do this? It's. <laughs> I would say no. It's it's not it's not legal if if it's if if they're acting uh, on 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 their their responsibility as officers of the court. They're not supposed to mis- mislead or use deceit. And so if, the, if your bosses are telling you, keep on your poker face when you say ready and keep saying ready, you know, why do you need a poker face? Well, presumably they expect you to be challenged or doubted. And so that's what you – if, if you're telling someone to tell the truth, they don't have to keep a poker face on you know, to, to, to tell the truth. So, Simon, the, the finding here in your investigation was not that prosecutors are, are, are saying that they're not ready when they are, in fact, not ready, but that they are saying that they're not ready for what purpose? Like, what, what benefit is it to them to delay the case? Well, like George was saying, <clears throat> oftentimes they just need more time because they have such a l- large caseload. Um, 
but also, I mean, a big takeaway of our piece was that, you know, not necessarily that anything illegal was happening, but just how weak New York State's quote unquote speedy trial law is and how that law allows prosecutors to engage in these tactics. So are and there states that do it better? I'm not a speedy trial expert, <laughs> um, but but with some of the law professors we did speak with, they, they explicitly said that New York was the only state that pegs it to prosecutorial readiness. So it really puts defendants' right to a speedy trial in the hands of prosecutors um, rather than on the court system, which is where it typically, you know, people would think it would it would lie. You know, the Sixth Amendment says you have to go to trial under, you know, in a reasonable amount of time, in a speedy amount of time. And George, you and, want to weigh in? Yeah, if I could add, um, the difference in these practices have real impacts on defendants' lives. Um, we outlined the story of a woman who was accused of a pretty simple misdemeanor, a case that could have been resolved in a few weeks. Um, but instead, in the Bronx, her case went on for three years. And that's because prosecutors said they were ready um, at arraignments, pausing the clock, and then later on said, actually, we're not ready, and kept doing that, causing continual delays. And this woman, because of her charges, had to live in a building with a neighbor who she allegedly had gotten into an altercation with and had a restraining order placed on her. So imagine for three years you're living in your same building and worried that if you go into an area with this other individual that you could be arrested for violating this order. So the degree to which they extend these cases has real impacts on people's lives on a day-to-day basis. And as someone who has attended enough court cases for reporting reasons, I mean, is it the case where, like, you you leave work or you leave school, you wait at the court all day, and then you're Mm -hmm. told, like, oh, there was a technical something with your case, and so come back in two months? Or you'll be there after waiting for so long for 15 seconds, and how did you get childcare that day? Did you skip another work day risking your job? I mean, these are things that happen outside of the courtroom that have a major impact on defendants' lives. Billie Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. First at five, it's the biggest upset from Tuesday's primary. Longtime St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough is out and Wesley Bell is in. Good evening, everyone. I'm Claire Kellett. And I'm Courtney Bryant. Today, News Force Matt Sesney sat down with the man who pulled off the surprise victory of the night last night. He joins us live in studio. Matt. Yeah, Courtney, he is 43 years old. He's getting national attention. And with no Republican opponent this fall, he is St. Louis County's next top prosecutor. Our message was resonating with voters. Wesley Bell says it was about four weeks ago when he thinks his campaign really took off. A campaign that he says shocked the world by unseating St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough, who has held the job for 27 years. What we knew was that um, our message was resonating with voters. And so we made a, a point to not only talk about the issues, but also strike a tone of bringing people together. There's enough divisiveness uh, around this region, around this country. Bell's message grew out of Ferguson, where he is an attorney and city councilman, and was also part of the reforms that happened there after the Michael Brown shooting. To go from that to Wesley Bell not only winning, 
but winning by like 15 percentage points. Right. Something like that. Yeah, I think it was 57 is, yes. is an incredible accomplishment. There's no way he could have accomplished this without binding together a, 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 a cross-racial, cross-generational coalition that I don't think has ever been seen in St. Louis County before. And he, he talked a little bit about this after he declared victory on Tuesday. I mean, just a lot of great organizations, a lot of great people. Um, I mean, groups, public defenders, prosecutors, law enforcement, but also activists and everyone in between. And so that's what I'm proud about this, this campaign is that we brought so many diverse groups together for a common cause, and it paid off tonight. So you've heard my uh, babbling on this. Rachel, you, you covered this race. It mm-hmm. should, should, is the hyperbole worth it in this instance? I think it is. I think you'd probably get some pushback on the groups that organized for Bell that the people are a major interest group in the county. They'd quibble with your language here. But as uh, Kayla Reed, who is with uh, Action STL, they ran the woke voter campaign not only in this race, but in uh, the race for prosecutor in the city of St. Louis when Jennifer Joyce retired. She said that a lot of it had to do with People just wanted an alternative. There hasn't been a viable alternative on the St. Louis County prosecutor ballot for Democrats since 1990 when McCullough was first elected. He's had Republican challengers a couple of years in there, I think 90 and 94. But since then, there's literally been no other option on the ballot. And um, Bell presented a a viable candidate who had support, who had positions that – people could get behind. Uh, he is talking about eliminating cash bail. He will says he'll never impose the death penalty. He is advocating for more transparency, increased use of diversions, a lot of, you know, kind of criminal justice reform issues that have become a lot more to the forefront since 2014. And I'm kind of losing my train of thought because like Jason, we're all yeah, running we're on, on, a, not a whole on fumes, but I, I think, yeah, it is, it, they were just kind of given a viable alternative and uh, enough groups sort of put organizing efforts into it, reached out and made those contacts to be able to, to say to people, you know, you have an option, go and vote. And people did. Now, I think a key thing that we shouldn't ignore is how hard Bell worked. Oh, yeah. At my house in Webster Groves, I got at least three flyers from Bell Camp. I got nothing from McCullough, which kind of surprised me. Um, I talked to a number of young lawyers, uh, some of them who I know pretty well, and a number of them were going for Bell because they liked his message. And from everything I heard, I was at, camped out at the Stinger um, watch party uh, Tuesday night, was that um, McCullough did not recognize the threat that Bell faced until just a few weeks before. And by that time, he didn't have the money or the time to really coordinate and put a strong campaign on the air and really do something about it. I think he was so used to not having serious opponents that um, he, he didn't recognize um, the broad support uh, that Bell was getting. And I think there also is a generational aspect here. You saw that in some other races as well. Which we'll talk about. Yeah, in which where you had some younger uh, progressives and Democrats who are a little wary of some of the older folks. And, um, and so in some cases, when they see a viable alternative who is closer in age and who they see as part of the future, I think then they went there. I think McCullough had the money, even with the outside groups that he 
uh, that supported Wesley Bell and put some money into them for fundraising and organizational support and outreach and other kind of things. Uh, McCullough still outraised Bell, and he brought it in from like traditional labor unions, etc. I think it was more a question of of time and enthusiasm. I mean, I got into some of the Facebook groups for volunteers for Bell just to kind of see what was going on, and they were posting, you know, we'll have a canvas here, we'll have a canvas there, we'll have a canvas there. Um, I reached out to you know the McCullough camp to say, hey, is there a canvas I can tag along on or take a picture? No, we don't really have anything organized. So there, there, he had the money. I just don't know if he had the time to kind of turn it around or the organization to be able to kind of flood and, and canvas and talk about because it. Because I, th- I think he was looking at it the old school way yeah. and not the new school way, just social media. But then again, as I said, even the traditional flyers, I, I am told he sent him out. I'm just saying that anecdotally, I didn't see him. I'm I, in the city. I wouldn't see him. I, I do got to ask this question because a lot of activist groups and a lot of national, you know, social justice, criminal justice groups, you know, gravitated toward Bell probably because they were upset with the way McCullough handled the Michael Brown situation. But some activists in the St. Louis area have been wary of Bell because he was either a prosecutor or judge in some smaller St. Louis County municipalities that don't have the best reputations. Now, as far as dealing with their residents and, and imposing large fines on poor people. Right. And and I always am a little bit careful to, you know, cast some of those cities in a, in a completely negative light, because oftentimes the ones that are highlighted happen to be majority black run cities, whereas there are plenty of bad actors in wealthier, whiter cities that may not get as much scrutiny. Max but, Creek was a, you know, little on that the law is named for that limits fines and fees is not a majority black town. But, but Rachel, like, what, was there any sort of like internal conflict between Bell's experience in the municipal, prosecutorial, and judicial arena and deciding to go all out for him? Because obviously the results speak for itself, but that was his experience, and and some would say uh, that experience isn't necessarily a good thing. Not that I saw played out. I think a lot of people sort of weighed it as you have a candidate who is saying the things that they want to hear. He's talking about reforming cash bail. He's talking about, you know, limiting the use of the death penalty, transparency, doing a lot of the criminal justice reform issues that these national groups are pushing. Uh, They're looking, I think, to how he's worked kind of in Ferguson with the consent decree. And like Joe mentioned, they're willing to kind of give him a chance in the future. They know – Excuse me. They know McCullough. They know what he does. They know what his policies do. As one of the organizers pointed out to me, she's 28 years old. McCullough has been in office literally since she was a baby. I mean, for just kind of generations in St. Louis, he has been the elected county prosecutor. So I think that they're hearing in sort of the broader criminal justice reform that his thinking has evolved, that he has had his eyes open to how the system as a whole plays out. And he's willing to kind of take those reform ideas up to St. Louis County. So were there sort of in internal conversations about do we get really far behind this? Maybe. But when they made the decision to go all in, they went all in. And we talked about that particular issue when Bell was on Politically Speaking. I I highly recommend, if you haven't already, listen to that whole show. You'll get a very vivid sense on what he plans to do when he becomes St. Louis County Prosecutor. And since there's no Republican, he will be the next St. Louis County Prosecutor. And also the first African-American St. Louis County Prosecutor, I believe. Tennessee. Tennessee, 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 Tennessee. This week in Tennessee, a county district attorney announced that he will reopen the investigation of a murder that took place 78 years ago. 
The murder victim was 31-year-old Elbert Williams. Williams was a black laundromat attendant who'd become active in voter registration in his hometown of Brownsville. It was 1940, decades before the civil rights movement took off, and Williams was taken from his home by a group of men. A couple days later, his body was dragged out of a river with bullet holes in his chest. The murder affected his family for generations. We reached his great-grandniece, Leslie Elaine McGraw. She lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I asked Leslie how she reacted when she found out the case was going to be reopened. We should warn listeners, some of the details in this conversation are difficult to hear. I was um, pleasantly shocked. You know, there's been discussion about this case being reopened at least for about three and a half years, but it seemed sort of a, a fool's errand. What finally convinced them to reopen it? Uh, A good white lawyer. He just took it upon himself. This was something he cared about? So Jim Emerson is a retired cold case investigative lawyer. And he says that he just stumbled upon the case and then just became consumed by it. Do you remember when you first heard about your great-great-uncle, Elmer Williams, and his murder? Did your family talk about it? The family as a whole, no. My grandmother told me, uh, I remember it very well, we used to watch Little House on the Prairie all the time. (laughs) And so she would talk over the show, you know, (laughs) with all her stories. (laughs) And so one day she started talking about, oh, yeah, Uncle Elbert. And I said, Uncle Elbert, you mentioned a lot of uncles, but I never heard about this Elbert character. And she said, yeah. You know, they killed him. And I'm thinking the KKK, you know, I asked her, was it the KKK? And she said, no, they came and took him. And when they found the body, something was weighting his body down in the water. So they had to crank him out of the river. And um, he had so much water log that his the blood in the water had swollen his body up two or three times the size And uh, she went on to describe how badly the body was bruised. And and she is the first time I saw my grandmother scared. So I was about eight or nine. Wow. And um, the way she talked about it was as though it had happened a week or two ago. That's a lot of information. That's a lot of detail for an eight or nine-year-old to take in. Yes. So she was nine years old when, at the time of the murder... And so maybe she thought because she learned this information at nine that it was time to pass it on when I turned nine. Hmm. Wow. But later I tried to talk to her about it and she would cut me off. She just said she didn't want to talk about it. What has been the the longer term impact of his murder on your family? The first is the most obvious is economic because it was a true domestic terror campaign that that went down in Haywood County in 1940. And many families, including at least a dozen of my family members, were made into refugees. So your your family ended up having to leave the state. What precipitated that? Um, A week before the murder, my cousin by marriage was run out of town. They made him walk on a bed of nails at the riverbank, and he was forced to give the names of who were still in the NAACP. Then 
there was the murder of my uncle. His wife was told she probably wouldn't be safe, so she moved to New York, I believe. My great-great-great-grandparents moved to Michigan and took my grandmother. So that splintered the family. Um, The impact also came through on a personal level, which is this sort of legacy of shame. Like it's You feel shame? I do not. But I do feel like within the family, because I found out there are family members that did know that just had never mentioned it. In the black community, sometimes there's a a shame associated with being descended from a slave or being descended from a sharecropper or a domestic. And um, You didn't think of him or the larger family didn't think of him as a civil rights martyr? No, because first of all, it wasn't, that part wasn't talked about. Everything was talked about in context of this one moment of victimization. What are you hoping comes from the investigation? I mean, do you want justice? Do do you need to confirm who did it? What do you expect? Um, My expectations have already been exceeded. I don't know. The the word justice always um, makes me pause because I don't know what justice would look like. I've heard the term restorative justice, which makes the most kind of sense. Like there was a, a installation of a historical marker in downtown Brownsville in Uh, 2015, that was healing for the community. Then there's the economic piece. Most people pass down heirlooms and homes and jewelry and everything. And and the way that we are made into refugees, a little bit that we had accumulated was all lost. Do you have kids? Yes. I have a 21-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. Do you know when you're going to tell her about Albert Williams? Well, there'll never be a time that she wouldn't have known. So uh, where I told my son at, I don't know, 17, my daughter won't have a time where she doesn't know. Because he's already a part of your life now. He's already a part of my life now. He's already part of the conversations now. I already have a picture of him, and so I have it up on the mantle. And so I tell her, that's uncle. Leslie McGraw is a descendant of Elbert Williams, the black civil rights worker whose murder investigation has been reopened this week after 78 years. Leslie, thanks so much for talking with us and sharing your family's story. Thank you. Yesterday on Morning Edition, we heard Susan Bro, whose daughter was killed a year ago while protesting the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Today, Bro continues her story on StoryCorps. Her daughter was Heather Heyer. She grew up in a small town outside of Charlottesville. Heyer was 32 years old and working at a law firm in the area when she was killed by a white nationalist. A year later, Bro sat down with her daughter's supervisor, Alfred Wilson. He remembered the first time he met Heather Heyer at her job interview. Heather was very honest with me and told me, I don't type. I've never worked in an office. All I've done all my life is bartender, waitress. So you took a chance. Yeah. She could communicate with anyone. And, you know, I'm a black male, and I might walk out to meet a client, and Heather would notice that sometimes they didn't shake my hand, and that would just infuriate her. And I'm like, where does she get this from? Because she grew up in this little small place that's not that diverse. 
She comes from a long line of stubborn people, stubborn and opinionated and not afraid to say so. That day of the rally, what time did I call you from the hospital? About 2 o'clock. I remember my wife told me, oh, my God, Alfred, you see what happened on the TV? And she didn't know that I was on the phone talking to you. I remember thinking, she's going to tell me that Heather's hurt. But you didn't tell me that. And then everything was so quiet, like somebody had shut the volume control off on the world. For me, losing my daughter was like, you have a lot of tears one time, then you'll go numb for a while. And uh, I'm glad you're finally able to let some of yours out because you worried me there for a while. Yeah. In May, I was going to have two kids graduating at the same time. And all I could think was I wanted her to be there. Yeah. But one of the plus sides was when you showed up to the graduation party. Your family was very welcoming, but I kept thinking Heather's the one that should be here. Yeah. For me, grief is like standing in the shallows of the ocean, knee-deep in the water. Every so often, a wave will wash over. And so I allow myself to cry and be really sad while that wave is there, but I know that it will go away, and that's what gets me through. That was Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer, who was killed at the Unite the Right rally last year in Charlottesville, Virginia. She was talking to Alfred Wilson, who was Heyer's supervisor at the law firm where she worked. That conversation will be archived in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Hashtag weeping white woman archived in the National Library of Congress. Washington, D.C. They don't have grocery stores for the Negras, the remaining Negras that live in the nation's capital. But you can get the StoryCorps interview about Heather Heyer. Woo! Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday. August 11th, 2018. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial-in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, counter-racist suggestions. The number 641-715-3640. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound Press star six one if you would like to participate. Use that hashtag weeping white woman. Uh, if you have to post about the Charlottesville situation or any of the other incidents uh, where it is a white woman 
involved, the tears are flowing, the racism and the tears are flowing fast. Hashtag weeping white woman. Few things before we get to the callers. Uh, there have been some technical issues, suspected racist interference with uh, the iTunes feed. So I think like two, the mo two of the most recent programs are not there, uh, but the broadcast is current at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, SoundCloud is current, even though I don't put the book club offerings at SoundCloud. But other than that, SoundCloud is current. Black Talk Radio Network, the archives are completely current. Uh, and Mr. Fox has been working diligently, investing his time in archiving the content at YouTube as well. So you should have lots of options and hopefully the iTunes situation will be corrected promptly. Uh, but this here, today's broadcast, that will be uploaded. It'll be at Black Talk Radio Network, SoundCloud immediately as soon as we wrap things up. Next, uh, the cows, we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com my blog address again racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com when you hit the blog top right corner you will see my paypal button much obliged to all the folks who have invested if you're not in the paypal drop us an email we will get you a physical mailing address extraordinary Thanks and appreciation to all of the folks all over the world who have invested in the cows nearly a decade of programming uh, only because listeners have supported our effort. I hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Also, you can hit the wish list for Gus T. Renegade at Amazon.com. It is under Gus T. Renegade. It is also linked at my blog right under the PayPal button. Again, extraordinary thanks to all the folks who have nabbed items for Gus T. for nearly a decade. I hope the cows has and continues to share constructive, accurate information about what white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. See if I can get the yoga material out of the way promptly. I should be teaching my class this coming Friday. I cannot believe it. Teacher training is all done. 200 hours of teacher training, almost complete. We'll be teaching the class, the final examination. Sure, there'll be many opportunities for racism between now and then. If you think you will be in the Seattle area this coming weekend, Friday evening, I don't even have an exact time for the class because they're still coordinating logistics. Uh, I can only say it will be approximately 7.30 p.m.-ish and probably a little later than that. 7.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, obviously. If you think you'll be in this part of the world, the weather should be great. Well, let me be specific. The weather should be about 80 degrees, sunny, no clouds, very little humidity, lovely time to visit. Uh, what I say is the greatest plantation in the Pacific Northwest, United States, as they say. No contest. Uh, you'll get to see it at its best. Uh, and I've been told that Hempfest is next weekend. So 
sobriety would still be best, but, you know, that is an added incentive if you want to come and frolic in the great Pacific Northwest and take Gusty's yoga class this coming Friday, 7.30 p.m.-ish. You can drop me an email for more details if you want to come. It's free. You don't even have to have a yoga mat. Just show up. They will give you a yoga mat, a towel, and wear your counter-racist t-shirt for people who've been looking uh, for an environment where you can wear your shirt. That would be grand. I would feel like I have some moral support uh, seeing the shirt, uh, even if you just wear it as a warm-up and then you take it off. That's fine, too. But you can wear your counter-racist shirt to the class. What a hoot. few other things. We heard the audio segment, Ferguson. This is the four-year four years since Michael Brown Jr. Uh, was killed uh, in Ferguson. We talked about it uh, almost from the day that the incident occurred. Four years on, prosecutor Bob McCullough, suspected race soldier, loses his job to a black male, no less, in Ferguson. And Leslie, uh, Leslie McSpadden, Michael Brown Jr.'s mother, is running for city council. Uh, is this constructive? Do we say, hey, they are doing the correct thing in Ferguson and maybe even uh, going to vote was a part of their effective, uh, relatively, locally at least, counter-racist effort. Four years on to get Bob McCullough, 27-year incumbent, removed from office. What do we think? You can respond as we proceed. Next, that situation in Oakland, I had to stop and think. I've said before, uh, I am a former resident of California. I think I actually lived in the Bay Area during that 15-year period when they had a consent decree, which would mean that I have lived in two different uh, cities. Seattle has a consent decree currently that have had a consent decree. Maybe that's why I don't think of all the police you know, chatter uh, as that big a deal. Anyway, when I listened to that report, I thought, if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, everything else will totally confuse you. In that segment, they were talking about how getting all of this data. Now we got all of these reports. We got all of our fancy new gadgets to tell us how many times the Negroes have been stopped, how many times we used our Negro knockers, how many times we stopped them, you know, for having their pants hanging off their hind parts. We got all of this data and things are about the same. Not only do, as we have said before, that's why I've said I'm not that interested in the you know police thing, because that's just going to be what it is until the system of white supremacy has been replaced. But not only do they do all of this and waste all of this money and white supremacy remains, they find a way to blame a black person. Jennifer Eberhardt is a black female. We've talked about her many times on the program. I've quoted her in my published writing. She won a genius grant. And I almost feel I have to put it in quotes because most of the time when I would see or hear whites reference her prior to this incident, it would be Jennifer Eberhardt, winner of a genius grant. And they would put quotes around it. I just I've seen that happen with other black people who are recipients of this award. Anyway. With that, she's done great work talking about how whites uh, almost subconsciously associate black people with monkeys. It's, it's reflexive the way that they think about us. Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, all of us. 
Anyway, so they get this situation in Oakland where she's brought in as a consultant, paid all this money. And of course, the problem is not solved. And now they say, oh, well, we're going to give her another $2 million. So everybody gets upset at her like it's her fault. Who is this nigga woman? She came in here, took all this money and, you know, the police are still beating us down. It's not her fault at all. They are masterful, masterful at being able to practice terrorism against us and then somehow find a way so that it will be a non-white person who gets blamed or who will at least be the object of our frustration to be yelled at. It, she could be fired today. They could take that $2 million back and their genius grant title and Negras in Oakland will still be getting pummeled by Oakland's finest, Tupac Shakur included. Oscar Grant, long list. Continuing. Uh, A decade of the context of white supremacy. I've written articles about racist jokes. I've talked about racist jokes for a decade. I'm not aware of many other platforms uh, books, people who talk about the significance of racist jokes in the system of white supremacy. That is, I would say, signature hallmark of the context of white supremacy. Wow. If you can think of every trifling moment that we have had uh, suspected racists on this program and yours truly, justice, callers sometimes have asked our white guests, hey, friend, can you share a racist joke? And oh, ah, hmm, I don't know, man. That's oh, that's a tough one. I, I'm hmm, I'm racking my brain. I don't. How many times? Or the best will be oh, I think I've heard about ten million. Up sometimes they'll say exactly that. I think I've heard about ten million, but I can't remember a single how many times over the last decade have we heard that from whites. Then you get the data. Again, you get all the data to just confirm system of white supremacy. You get the data. They said searched on the same level with the same frequency as the economist, the Lakers. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought this was just, you know, one or two white people here or there with one tooth. A heroin habit, maybe they're swapping. Whoa, whoa, whoa! If this is being talked about as much as the Lakers, the economist, the Lake, even when I heard that, I even had to pause. The Lake, you mean that no good nigger Magic Johnson who ran around spreading AIDS everywhere? Remember, remember that one? Remember that? I think that was four years ago too, right at the same time as Michael Brown Jr. Anyway, if this is the frequency of the nigger and the nigger jokes. It's not people of color jokes. It's not black and brown jokes. It's nigger jokes. That would have made me most pleased, most accurate with the segment. Make it plain. Not African-Americans, not black. Nigger jokes. That's really what we're talking about here, right? White supremacy, racism. That's really the punchline in a lot of these getting to say nigger and do violent things to niggers. If that's what it is, make it plain. That's another great illustration of why I do not use the phrase black and brown. In fact, I think that spreads confusion. All of that, people of color, all of that spreading extraordinary confusion. If we, racist man, racist woman, racist child 
in between going back and forth about LeBron James joining the Lakers, in between that, it's how many niggas does it take to screw in a light bulb? Oh, man, make it plain. That's what we're talking about when we talk about racism, white supremacy. Don't minimize that. Next, the segment uh, that we heard towards the end, they are reopening this case that happened in Tennessee. I think we have listeners there. Uh, almost 100 years ago, I thought it was so grand. The victim using the term domestic terrorism, because that's what this is, even currently, but Tennessee's campaign of white domestic terrorism targeting black. And oh, my goodness, did you hear the examples? They went out and took a black person and made them walk on a bed of nails to give names of NAACP members. Not ancient history, I believe. She said this was in the 1940s. I'm sure some of these people are still alive and should be prosecuted for practicing white domestic terrorism. Timothy McVeigh, that's what we're talking about. Continuing. The same segment, the white person during the interview, I think a listener brought up before the incorrectness and the the other ways that white supremacy racism is manifested when you have white journalists suspected race soldiers who are then doing the interview of victims to talk about how they've been terrorized i think this came up in the context of uh, a white person i believe a white female journalist interviewing some of the victims and relatives of the victims of the uh dylan storm roos terrorist attack 2015 same type of situation. Tell us about how you feel and what was that like? Hmm. When did you find out about the Negroes that, hmm, hmm, that sort of thing. That was uh, one that came to mind. But when they talked about uh, black people being ashamed of having enslaved, having slaves as ancestors or sharecroppers or whatever it is, uh, that portion of it, I thought was incorrect. I think there is a sense of shame attached with being a victim of white supremacy. I think that would be most accurate. Uh, And I think that too comes with not understanding the system of racism, white supremacy. But I think that is very consistent uh, where non-white people do not want to be honest about how we have been terrorized, even things that happen to us right now, 2018 on the job, workplace racism every Thursday, but I think that is most accurate. I think Mr. Fuller says that most often the result is going to be when you start giving truthful, accurate commentary about white supremacy, whites will become defensive and black people will become ashamed, embarrassed. I think he said that that's generally the pattern that you're going to see. Uh, Next, they used the term communities Uh, that there was some sort of uh, plaque erected in Tennessee. I hate those tacky plaques. Uh, That there was some sort of uh, plaque or monument erected to the victim of white supremacy that was lynched some 75 years ago, as they said, uh, and that this was healing for the community. That even to me sounds like a metaphor. No idea what that means exactly. What quote-unquote community you're talking about again and in the same segment she said we were refugees 
Katrina, refugees. We were forced to leave with everything and, and losing, you know, a major source of income for the family. And, and all, that's not a community. Communities are not subject to campaigns of domestic terrorism. Communities are able to safeguard themselves so that that never happens. If you are subject to domestic terrorism and have to be totally uprooted, we started in Tennessee and we're lucky to get to Ann Arbor, Michigan. You don't have a community. Just using counter-racist logic. Next, uh, they said, when talking about the Unite the Right, talk about domestic white terrorism, talking about the Unite the Right rally from a year ago, I am really not super well informed about that incident because when that happened, I had just uh, injured my back. And then I was in the middle of getting my wisdom teeth extracted. That was my summer of two, or at least the August portion of the summer of my 2017. So I was not keeping uh, up to date with this when it happened last year. Uh, however, I have been forced to hear a lot about it since then. Uh, the same thing, the same way that I talk about the incident that happened in Neshoba County, Mississippi in 1964, uh, where those two white boys, I never named them. I say James James. Cheney and those two white boys that were killed. That's the same thing that is going to happen. I'm not saying that white girl's name any longer. It's just going to be that white girl who was killed in Charlottesville. And that'll be that if you all need to say her name, whoop-de-doo, but I am no longer saying her name. That was in my view, the NPR segment from StoryCorps that's going to be in the National Library of Congress. That was a total propaganda segment to have a, a black male come on to sing praises and reverence <sighs> to have a black male come on and say yes in the great commonwealth of Virginia I would go out to greet customers presumably race soldiers and they did not want to shake my nigger hand probably just finished looking up nigger jokes on Google and they didn't want to shake this nigger's hand and the white girl who got killed would be infuriated that was the vert <laughs> infuriated what did she do since she was so infuriated, did she get up and box their ears? Did she tell them a thing? Or do, you're going to shake this nigger's hand right now. Who do you think you are? What did she do that she was so infuriated? And I think we've had listeners talk before. Really, a white person whose whole life you've been waitressing, bartending, and you have to be dependent on a nigger to get you a job. You sound pretty helpless to do anything. You being upset about racism is not helping me at all. I could care less. At any rate, I thought that whole segment was total racist propaganda, and they have had a lot of those segments this week to be expected, but I mean, watch, uh, that race, pff, that white girl's mother was on Democracy Now! My BFF did a huge segment on her. They had her on NPR multiple times. They even had multiple segments today. I think I could have spent a good 30 minutes just on this one white girl with all of the incidents of terrorism that have happened to black people in the meantime just on this one white girl they couldn't even keep up with the number of people that died in puerto rico that's mostly non-white people they said it was 76 that happened at the same time last year they said it was 76 people at first and then came back and said whoops we meant 5,000." but we got every detail about no count white girl who died in charlottesville last year context of white 
weeping white woman forgot she cried at the end of it propaganda from the beginning to the end weep hashtag weeping white woman the number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate if you could take five minutes to share whatever commentary thoughts if you want to respond to the question about whether or not what's happened in ferguson is constructive uh, if you could limit your commentary to five minutes that way everybody has at least one opportunity to speak if you know you're in a noisy environment if you could please use your mute button that would really help preserve the quality of the broadcast. If you could just share whatever you need, use your mute button. Then if you need to come back later on to ask a question or clarify, you can unmute and rejoin the dialogue. Much obliged. For this program specifically, I ask if we could not use metaphors. Just for example, I have heard people uh, use as a metaphor, it was like walking on a bed of nails. I've heard people use that uh, metaphor uh, before to um, to suggest or to imply a certain amount of difficulty or intensity in a particular situation. I don't think that they were using that as a metaphor. I think they literally meant that as a part of the domestic terrorism campaign conducted by race soldiers in Tennessee, they literally made a black person walk on a plank of nails and give up names of NAACP members, niggers, apes, alligators, coons, possums, hmm. made them give up that information. That is literal terrorism. We should be specific uh, about what we mean. I think frequently racists, they will make analogies, metaphors, comparisons to spread confusion. It probably won't be long before they'll be saying Heather Hare is the Rosa Parks of the 21st century or some nonsense uh, of the same level, they do this sort of thing all the time. Master deceivers, victims of white supremacy, including Gus T. We've been exposed to this behavior and we are still learning. Frequently, we have not come to conclusions on some subjects. We don't have logic and we'll substitute, use a metaphor, a simile, comparison of some sort, hoping it accurately conveys what we're thinking. And often it does not. It just spreads a lot of confusion. If we could be precise, exact with what we mean to say, that would be appreciated. If you need a little more time to get your thoughts, to gather your thoughts, to think about what you want to say, that is always celebrated and allowed. Much obliged. I will prompt about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have comments questions you would like to share first few people that dialed in with a hand up line should be open proceed good evening Gus. can i be heard greetings thomas in new york yes sir um the answer to your question about ferguson uh absolutely not won't help at all um not try to um focus on solutions to our problems and um dr wells's definition of racism, white supremacy, apartheid, um, is the best. And after reading it recently, because I knew it had the word symbols in it, 
And um, when I was in Vegas, that well, day one, I said, man, I kept thinking of her definition. She said, Sybil, this is what she's talking about. And then I, you know, looked it up and revisited it with a different mindset than it was years ago when I first, you know, read her material and got into her books. Um, to me, it has all the solutions um, to our problem in it that I see. Um, and also, I was thinking, man, if they put a Nazi hotel casino on the Strip, or a Confederate hotel casino on the Strip, it would be the biggest thing ever. I mean, it would, I guarantee it would be the number one casino on the Strip. Um, say it loud, black and proud. Um, I, in my opinion, the dumbest song ever. Total oxymoron. The word black means color of night, evil, sullen, darkened, atrociously wicked, criminal, horrible, dirty, dismal, mournful, calamitous, and white, pure, holy, clean, beautiful, etc. Uh, if the system of white supremacy is a system, then it needs maintenance, and it also, all systems run off logic, back to Wells and Dr. Wells' definition. If you, these people have created a logic in which we call ourselves black, which means all of those words I said earlier, and they call themselves white. And uh, to me, that's genius. Um, and conditioned us to be proud of it. Um, I saw a documentary on BET of all places, which surprised me. It was about women who have had butt augmentation surgery. And um, please um, let your children see this, especially if you have teenagers. Um, I learned... Um, that this comes from uh, originally from the transgender community, which I wasn't um, which I didn't know before. But um, this it was a very good documentary, and um, it was trying to convince women not to do this. Um, and I think that when you see some of the reactions that people had to this stuff, it, it would change people's mind. And I didn't know that the you know social media was guiding young girls to do this. So um, Google and big data, uh, also called data mining. Um, Google has AI robots that started calling black, people called classified as black monkeys and gorillas. This was a few years ago. Um, Breakfast Club just had an interview with Lyle Cohen, who used to be the president of Def Jam Records. He's a white Jew, um, controlling a lot of the negativity you hear in hip hop now. He just became um, president of Google's largest subsidy called YouTube. Um, Google is the world's largest search engine, and um, YouTube is second. So that, that's how big they are. Um, YouTube has been used by melanated people to attack other melanated people. If you go and look at some of the videos, you'll be shocked at how much negativity has been on YouTube, especially since Mr. Cohen has taken over a couple years ago. And, um, you know, even I was subject to a Google um, YouTube attack, you know, by, of all people, Black Talk Radio. Um, I wanted to say uh, Alma Rosa came out this week. Um, she was upset. She repeatedly heard, um, she said Trump repeatedly used the N-word in his new book, in her new book. But um, when I read the article, she said she never heard him use it herself. Interesting um, is that, she would put that in the book, and she never heard or saw him use it. Uh, I haven't yet to hear um, Black um, Trump say anything bad about Black people, and specifically other than the NFL players. Um, um, another thing in the um, news this week: Black Klansmen. 
allows you to laugh at ridiculousness of white supremacy then and now. Now, this is on August 10th, August 12th, which is my birthday. That was last year. I was glued to the TV as Charlottesville happened. And um, they're saying that this is, um, we're going to laugh at the ridiculousness of white supremacy after seeing that. And the last thing I wanted to say was uh, Cincinnati police, 11-year-old girl stealing from Kruger's Market, tased, um, tased in the back as she ran away from police officers, although they had her cornered off, handcuffed, arrested for stealing school supplies. I'll mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Wow. Stealing school supplies. Nearly a death sentence. Uh, I think glued to the TV is a metaphor. Uh, but much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, or at least the first few people that dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary you'd like to share, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. This is Gio calling from Chicago, Illinois, a.k.a. Chirac, a.k.a. The Political Machine. Okay, Um, James Brown. I heard a story that initially he didn't want to do that song, Say It Loud, and um, he was forced by some activists to do the song. And this is James Brown, the same person that did Living in America for Rocky, I believe with uh, starring Sylvester Stallone, the um, one that has got caught saying nigger to someone on the street. I think that was recently. So that's interesting. Um, Europe. Europe. Um, I believe they have the the most um, child pornography cases worldwide. I think they're known for that. So with uh, the incident in Germany... Not surprised at all. And um, Seth Stevens um, with the Google search. Uh, Gus, was that, uh, is that, that trend, that Google search trend, was that for this year? I'll have to look to see if that's the data from this year specifically. Oh, okay, because I remember you had a segment about that some years ago with the Google Google trend, and I, I believe that was the same thing also, so that's interesting. Um, the white woman that was jailed uh, uh, with uh, on the Turks, I believe, um, yeah, um, that's, <laughs> that's something because uh, – what she said, I don't know if she saw um, Ethan Couch, the one that was that killed four people in Texas, and blew a breathalyzer of point twenty four, and um, got uh, got away off charges for uh, influenza, the rich kid syndrome, and had ten years of probation in two thousand thirteen. So maybe she saw that story and believed she probably would get. Um, lesser charges or something so um the speedy trial in the bronx um that's that that's interesting uh i read a article in uh chicago reader it was in uh november in 2016 and they were talking about speedy trials in cook county and um cook county has lesser inmates than rikers island roughly like eight thousand but they but they hold more than uh, a, a double number of inmates awaiting trial for like multiple years. Some 
uh, I think ranging up to two in the extremes is like eight years for for some people. And and also it said uh, Chicago police, um, they missed more than 11,000 court dates since 2010, ca- causing a, a lot of unnecessary delays on the trial. So <laughs> that's interesting. Same same place, same, Chicago, Illinois, uh, Illinois, also the same place where juvenile courts was uh, created in 1899. So I guess it's all, it, 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 it all intertwines um i didn't hear no mention with the heather hire i didn't hear no mention of deandre harris the one that was beaten and the victim uh the 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 people that beat him are um some of them are still they're still looking for them um uh, i would think they would mention him in that and when they were talking about heather hire but um white supremacy um tennessee uh, that case in Tennessee, uh, not really surprised because um, that's right borderline of Kentucky, where where they have a, a lot of sundown towns. Um, some, uh, I think uh, Morgan County. This book I was reading, Sundown Towns. They they had uh, a, a billboard sign saying "Nigger, don't let the sun set on your head." Um, I think uh, they ha- uh, that's um, also similar to that uh, documentary that came out um, not, uh, years ago, and um, they Tennessee also garnered uh, uh, national attention in the 1950s with uh, Miles Horton, who, who defied it and located it, um, his Highlander uh, folk school, uh, famed for training with the civil rights leaders there. So that, that that's that's interesting. Um, I, I think that probably would be my time, and I'll, uh, I'll mute, mute my line. Thank you. And also, um, um, hope uh, my sentiments to Rob in Milwaukee. Thank you. Much obliged. I'm sure uh, Rob, in, uh, Rob in Wisconsin uh, appreciates the kind words. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we've not heard from at all, and I'm looking at that report now uh, from uh, NPR, what can Google search data tell us about human behavior? So that was from August 6th with Seth Stevens, Davidowitz. They do not have an exact date, but this is from a book that was just published. So I would think with all of the generally with all of the editing and time and what have you that goes into compiling statistics for a book, I would think this is probably information that he got from last year I don't think it could have been I don't think it could have been too current if this is information where he's talking about from a book but I could be in error Uh, I can post the link if folks want to check it out and uh, come to their own conclusions Uh, anywho other folks uh, that we've not heard from at all if you have commentary may I be heard Uh, yes ma'am greetings red in Nevada hello Um, hello everyone thank you for allowing me to share Um, the first thing, I um, always appreciate Thomas from New York's commentary. Um, I did actually just look up the story in Cincinnati uh, about the little girl, and there was it's actually on Cincinnati.com. And I thought that it was uh, at the end of the article, there's a really, I think it's a pretty good example of racism and white supremacy. They took someone's post, really has nothing to do, it's it just an opinionated post by a suspected racist. Um, uh, and how he actually uses food deserts as a way of uh, 
saying, well, you know what, you just need to let the investigation uh, about why that police officer uh, tased the little girl. Um, uh, and it, it kind of, it's almost just like he's rambling. Basically, he's like, well, you know, remember food deserts? Well, you know, if you, if the cop didn't grab her and if she, if she, if the cop grabbed her and she resisted and she right. fell, then Kroger's would get sued and then the city will eventually get sued and the Kroger's would leave. So, you know, you just need to not, he, he says, um, he uses a metaphor, but he's basically like, you know, people just need to not be so hurt by this and um, all uses of force by CPD are investigated. So allow the investigation. I just think that's interesting. And it makes me think about this, the story. Um, actually, a relative, they told me about a story in Chillicothe, Ohio, where a white drug addict um, had given birth to a baby, a opioid baby in a bathroom and the only reason why the baby survived was because and she gave ba she gave birth to the baby and the baby um, um it fell into the toilet and the only reason why the baby survived was because its head was above water and um her boyfriend it, her uh, she was actually in the bathroom had a um, had some drugs with her and her boyfriend was also out in the parking lot i guess waiting on her to you know drop off the baby in the bathroom and just leave or whatever but he was um, nodding off in the parking lot. They eventually arrested them. I'm sorry, they, um, they allowed them to go to the hospital. And then after uh, at least the, the white drug, drug addict uh, woman um, was released, that's when they arrested her. And it kind of makes you think about, you know, I, there's all these different stories about how they would shackle um, different pregnant women to their beds. You know, and I think that that's worse than, you know, you have this drug addict who just gave birth, but you allowed her to be released from the hospital before you arrested her and charged her. And they don't know what's going to happen. And the police chief um, in Chillicothe said he doesn't know what's going to happen to the baby. Um, that's on, um, if anybody wants to look up that story, that's on Chillicothe uh, Gazette. Chillicothe is C-H-I-L-L-I-C-O-T-H-E. Um, to the clips. Uh, the exercising clip, I thought that, that was interesting. It always seems like people, they come out with different um, different data to uh, dispute some other data that they came out with saying, you know, well, you should exercise, you know, almost every day. But now it's like, no, if you exercise every day, it could cause more stress. But it's almost like I really like to hear more or even look up like the report because you don't know what's going on in those people's lives that may cause that outside stress. It's maybe not just like the the actual or working out and I went to work out today at the gym that I go to and um there was an, and something told me I should have worn my shirt which next time if I get like this permission to wear my shirt I will uh, but when I got there there was a bunch of Clark County um, firefighters there and just disgusting individuals bank and then they wouldn't clean off the machine so I'm like that kind of caused me stress to have to if I have to use a machine behind them that, you know, if they're sweaty and disgusting, but um, just a couple other things about the clips. I feel like the one of the clip about um, Ferguson, I don't feel like it would make much of a difference. I, I guess I could still kind of understand why victims are still voting, but I think that this might be a way for Ferguson to then blame it on a nigga basically where, you know, and I say this, like, you know, and as if, you know, not calling them Negroes, but how white people, they will put black people in high positions, showcase them, and then 
possibly take the funding away from the city or do something to where they further damage this, they further um, oppress black people within that area. And just a way to blame it on, oh, well, it's this new prosecutor. Now we know we shouldn't have let you all, we shouldn't let you black people vote anyway, because you don't know what you're doing. So I, I think that that might be what they're doing. And with McCullough, for him to, for the interviewer to say, well, you know, he, I think he did have the money, but he just didn't feel like putting in the time or the effort. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if he was given like the, the foreknowledge to know, okay, well, we're going to start doing more terrible things to this area. So don't even worry about trying to, um, it, you know, uh, what is it? Um, try to get more people out to vote for him because they're just going to further, uh, you know, just do, do, you know, just practice racism, white supremacy. Uh, the I guess I'll just um, quickly comment on on the, uh, the the speedy trial. I felt like it was definitely buckets and buckets of words. It was hard for me to kind of keep up because they would say, well, it was one part they said, I forgot who said it, was like, um, I guess the interviewer, she'd ask, well, is this, you know, legal? And he was like, well, it, you know, it's kind of unethical, you know, with the lawyers, they're taught right out of law school, you know, you're not supposed to do this. But then in the job, you know, it tells you, they tell you to, you know, waste time. So you kind of have to go with what the job tells you. And again, this is another example of white, you know, coming up with laws that they really don't have to follow or making the law so vague that it's like, you know, you might as well not ha even have a law at all. And I feel like it kind of puts the onus on, you know, whiteness itself or the, you know, just this mysterious thing of the system and not, you know, these people are practicing racism, the people who told you to procrastinate and let these people languish in jail or what ha whatever, these are white people a lot telling you to do this and keep propagating this, this same racist practice. Um, but I'll meet my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Red in Nevada. I think that portion in the clip where they were talking about the prosecutors in New York, the person doing the interview asked, uh, I believe, is this uh, illegal? And he didn't give a direct, absolutely. It was, ooh, well, er, hmm, uh, yes. And then he went on and, you know, talked some, I mean, make it plain, make it plain. Uh, if you're a professional journalist, this is what you're paid to investigate. You did your research. Answer the question. I believe someone likes to use the term pussyfooting. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we've not heard from you at all, uh, proceed. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, a couple of things about the situation in Fergus, the voting in Ferguson. I don't know whether well, this audience may be different, but I did look up the county, and St. Louis County is not the same as St. Louis City, which I thought it was. That's why I looked it up. I'm glad it wasn't. And this particular county has a high percentage of white people. So... It is suspicious that they voted this African-American man. Not that, not that he's not qualified, and I don't want to say he's not qualified, because sometimes we have these qual these conversations like people aren't qualified to do this job, and I'm pretty sure he is, but it is suspicious. And I noticed when he gave his thank you speech, he thanks diverse groups, and I guess that's black male privilege where he couldn't actually thank black people um, like other groups. If, like the thing at the voting in Alabama, oh, black women are so wonderful, blah, blah, blah. 
and he couldn't thank black people, which I'm sure in that particular situation, most of the black people there did vote for him. That's barring a big scandal or him being married to a white woman, they would vote for him. Um, the Charleston person, Charlottesville person, having no experience yet getting a job. Um, yeah, I'm sure black people listening now who have been told they've been overqualified and to work, I believe, at a legal, at a legal firm, no less, you would expect to have someone with some education that almost implies, which I know is not true, that this lawyer or this firm did not take that position seriously, which you would think at a law firm every position is serious because of confidentiality requirements and things like that, and you just hire basically some white girl off the street, which, I don't know, that personally wouldn't make any sense to me. And it always is perplexing to me why white people want to work for black people. I always think it's some kind of shady, well, not shady, but not positive reason. Maybe they're spying or something like that. I've never trusted that. Um, Well, now more than ever, I haven't trusted that. And um, those are the two things that I wanted to bring up at this time. Thank you. Much obliged. Much obliged. Uh, Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary you would like to share, if we've not heard from you at all, uh, you should go ahead and speak up now. Can I be heard? Uh, Imhan DC, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, the host, the callers, and the listeners. Uh, uh, I would say, as far as the um, election of electing black people, I don't think that in particular would solve many problems. I know a number of, I know actually most of the black politicians elected officials in my city and I've spoken to them extensively over the years and it looks like the only thing that I remember that has been done like tangibly was two things that I remember one that they changed the street name of of one of the streets to Muhammad Ali um, Boulevard or or or, um, Avenue something but something they, they named the street after Muhammad Ali so that was tangible but, um, and then the other thing was that they changed the, how do you say this? They changed the, the amount that people get, uh, um, money that people get, uh, minimum wage. That's how you say it. They changed the minimum wage and, uh, uh, they raised it, uh, successfully raised it. And then the, I think the following year, um, white people got together and lowered it back to the original number. Uh, so, no, I actually don't think that that's going to solve problems in itself. But what I do think that it does is that it allows the black person to have a little more clout when they're speaking to other governments and then trying to figure out how in the world are we going to stop these white people, individual black people. I don't, you know, I don't know, because it seems like there's so many other black people who are fighting against black people. It's 
like I haven't figured out I haven't figured out how to solve the problem as far as what people call unity because there's so many black people who will fight and die for white people so many of them that are having sexual relationships with these white people so then government might or may, might not help solve the problem especially if we're talking about African governments where in Africa there's over two billion people and it's difficult to speak to although I've spoken to a few you know people in in, in positions in Africa or in one country um, it's still it, it's still to where there's no clout until you have something behind you so that's what I would say as far as the election uh, thing and then um, the other thing is, again, we have to solve this problem of white people, and then what's the solution? Because um, there's going to have to be some some consequences. So, yeah, that's all. Thank you. Much obliged, Mr. M. Handisi. I think something behind you might be a metaphor, but uh, keeping track, I think everyone who has responded to the question thus far about uh, Mr. Wesley Bell, first uh, African-American, that's what they said, uh, elected to the St. Louis County uh, Prosecuting Attorney Office, <clears throat> defeats a uh, 27-year incumbent, Robert McCullough, who did not prosecute the race soldier who shot and killed Michael Brown Jr. four years ago. Everyone who's answered thus far has said no. They do not think that this will be uh, constructive. If someone did answer and think, said that they thought it was going to be helpful uh correct me but i think everyone i've heard thus far said no they don't think it'll it'll be helpful uh might even be a round of uh or might even be an instance of blame a nigger uh other folks that we've not heard from at all if you have a hand up proceed can i be heard yes ma'am is this uh draftomania uh yes mm, good evening uh dustin guest um, I just wanted to comment to comment in regards to the reopening of the case of the um, civil rights uh, worker, um, the gentleman that was um, lynched. And um, I wanted to uh, just comment about the generational trauma that it caused the family and how the victims uh, tend, how victims tend to take on the shame caused by victimization. And um, somehow, um, Victims can feel as if they were um, were to blame, as it um, as in the case of um, just like um, I guess you can somewhat um, apply it to uh, it's, it's similar to like a rape victim or molestation victims, um, how they tend to somewhat um, take on the um, you know the shame and the blame and, and tend to think that that's their fault. But I think that you gave a, a very good explanation to that. Uh, that's when you uh, basically you said that um, more appropriately, um, uh, your um, your exploitation is due to um, white. Uh, it's basically the explanation due to uh, white. It's basically due to white supremacy, and white supremacy causes us to feel ashamed of um, speaking up because when we speak up about um, any type of um, terrorization that we've gone, we've experienced and trauma that's caused by that, um, you know, um, this system tends to make us feel ashamed and then, you know, we, we tend to shut down. And I can um, basically just like relate it to my own experience um, 
experience that I've um, experienced some trauma um, growing up. Um, I had a, I had a brother that um, was in an accident that almost cost his life, and um, how my family um, never got any help, um, and how um, we. Draftomania, are you still with us? Draftomania, I think we might have lost her. Uh, I will continue to look at the switchboard. When I see her return, we will get her continued commentary. Uh, while we are waiting for her to rejoin, uh, other folks who dialed in that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I'll start off 1968. Uh, I uh, kind of vividly uh, remember the tune, Say It Loud. Uh, it was quite popular, quite popular. Um, uh, I would say... Uh, the older people, uh, older non-white black people that was in my uh, uh, environment didn't like it, uh, primarily because uh, a lot of them identified themselves as colored. That's, that's what that was the argument, although, you know, neither one makes any sense <laughs> when it comes down to it. Uh, I would say, though, uh, as far as the, uh, you know, the breakdown of the uh, of the uh, song itself, uh, the, I think the chorus part is, is I'm black and I'm proud. But the the uh, core of the lyrics itself primarily was were constructive. If you uh, if anyone cared to uh, do the research on the lyrics. I I, mean, I know basically most of the lyrics by heart, uh, but uh, most of the inner part of the uh, of the song itself, the lyrics I'm, I'm speaking about, is uh, constructive. Uh, it's that part, say a lot, I'm black and I'm proud. It's the uh, it's the confusing part. Uh, but at that particular time, uh, in time, uh, it was very popular, very popular. Uh, amongst uh, young people, primarily. Uh, the question for today: uh, What's comes? What uh, what I what I think uh, of is prisoners voting for prisoners, and uh, I would say a prisoner doesn't have the amount of power to uh, make a difference in terms of professional voting anyway, of solving the problem, uh, if I'm understood on what I just said. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I would say with voting itself, uh, you know, if the if you're voting on um, uh, the street, that that uh, huge hole in the street getting fixed, 
uh, that would be something that uh, can come to something uh, constructive, you know, as far as that concern. But uh, for the most part, under the global system of racist white supremacy, uh, collectively, black people don't have any uh, power. So therefore, uh, as far as the professional voting process, uh, I don't think anything will come out of that. (laughs) It it reminds me of uh, you had a, uh, I think it was a non-white person on the program years ago who literally was just like, really angry <laughs> at uh, at uh, the uh, participants uh, when uh, a lot of us uh, basically uh, mentioned about the uh, the uh, the vote and uh, the uninterest of its uh, importance in that professional way that most people talk about. That's all I have to say. Thank you. It's been a number of folks I can recall who get real passionate about that voting. I know they are uh, cringing. I think uh, we have not had one person who thinks that anything constructive will come from having the first black prosecutor in the history of St. Louis County. Not one. They even asked him if he's going to. Could I, could I give you just a few a few examples? Uh, you can't. I do want to insert one thing, though. I have said uh, for years, oh. uh, people uh, nab me all the time with that. They will say that they're done. And then I will go to speak to move on to whoever else. And then, well, whoa, wait a minute, Gus. I got five or 12 other things that I did forget uh, that I would hope we can all work to get better uh, on that, because frequently it does disrupt my thinking. Uh, when I get interrupted, I forget what I'm trying to say or what I'm trying to move forward. Uh, if we could all work on our memories so we can recall what we're trying to say the first time that we speak, I would greatly appreciate it. Those interruptions are unpleasant. Uh, if you can, if you're still in your five minutes, retired firefighter, I'm not sure because uh, you did get a turn so this would almost be two are you did you get five minutes uh i i i i, I don't think so if if, if close maybe may have been close to it let's get it in a minute let's hear it yeah well i was the, the examples you know uh uh when the the whole uh energy about voting with black people uh, uh, in and around after Dr. King's uh, death, uh, Cleveland, and we know what type of situation Cleveland is in, uh, places like that, Washington, D.C., uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about gentrification in all of these places. So it's, it's just a, uh, a situation where it, it doesn't seem to uh, work for uh non-white victims of racist white supremacy, especially black people in this part of the world. That's it. I promise. <laughs> lots of lots of examples after the assassination of Dr. King. We talked about a few of those uh, as well. Cleveland, Ohio. Great state of Ohio. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if they have commentary, if we've not heard from you at all, proceed. Uh, can I be heard? Mr. Ken Steele. Yes, uh, this is Ken Steele, and I'm uh, reporting from uh, Costa Mesa, uh, California, this evening. And uh, I, I wanted to 
um, first state that uh, I am black, and I am proud of that fact. Um, you know, I, I, I like being black. Um, I like being, uh, um, I like my shade. I like all the, the physical aspects of it. I hate the system of white supremacy. Um, and, I, you know, I guess the classification of what we are as being black, you know, it might be, um, by definition, uh, a bad thing, but uh, I like being black. So I, I, I'm proud of it, and uh, I think the song is pretty cool, too. Um, what is that? Uh, also, I just wanted to comment on the convoluted reporting on the voting uh, that went behind the um, election in Ferguson and in St. Louis County. Uh, if you notice, anytime a black candidate is elected and uh, is done by, um, there's an incredible margin of uh, black people that voted for them, they never want to point at the fact that uh, they had near unanimous support uh, from uh, black voters. They want to point to every single other voting block that may have expressed uh, any, uh, any iota of support uh, for the candidate. And then on top of that, it, it was really odd about how they reported uh, that Bob McCullough raised more money, but it seemed like uh, the uh, person who was just elected um, it seemed like he uh, spent more money on outreach and uh, there was a, a greater effort. So it sounds to me like Bob McCullough uh, spent that election just raising money and not spending any, and it seems like that may have been thrown. Um, it seems like uh, there may be... Um, a greater strategy by the white supremacists at play in St. Louis County. And I wouldn't put it past them. Um, this is a group of people who are known to write 99-year leases. So um, I, I'm not very optimistic about uh, this uh, new district attorney. Uh, if you listen to the clip about how um, he was addressing his victory and who he owed his victory to, um, he didn't mention black people, and he didn't mention anybody who was the, the victim of uh, racism. Um, and it sounded like he is beholden to a whole slew of uh, groups, causes, and organizations that he has to answer to before he has to answer to black people. And, you know, as the prosecutor, I think his job is going to be uh, in St. Louis County, as the prosecutor in St. Louis County, uh, I think his job is going to be uh, locking up um, scores of black people, scores of young black people at that. So I, I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic about, uh, about uh, this election, and I don't think that uh, voting is going to uh, solve the problem, which is white supremacy. And... Uh, also, I read a report earlier this week that uh, Google is now uh, pledging $2 million to fight racism in, or 
to fight racial bias in artificial intelligence. Now, I don't know exactly how they're going to go about and do this, um, other than, you know, to fire all the racists at Google, but I don't know if they would fire themselves. So they're going ahead and uh, they, pl- they, med- they made this pledge, and uh, it just speaks to how enormous this problem is. It's uh, so noticeable that um, some consulting firm is going to make uh, uh, a lot of money um, giving what is going to amount, to, or what I predict is going to be amount to a vain attempt uh, to fight any sort of uh, racism. And then also, I just wanted to finish by saying there's, a, um, there's something peculiar going on with the uh, NFL. Uh, they recently announced that they are having male dancers uh, included with the cheerleaders, and I suspect uh, that this is going to um, cause some, some sort of distraction from the um, whole anthem protest. And I think that this is some sort of a long play strategy by uh, the racists uh, that are in charge of the NFL, because I don't recall any um, NFL fans uh, that I've spoken to uh, asking for uh, <laughs> male cheerleaders. So I, I think that uh, this is uh, going to be used to uh, create confusion um, uh, and in order to distract uh, victims who are trying to fight racism in the NFL. But uh, anyway... I'm going to go ahead and mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Mr. Steele. Uh, Context of white supremacy. Uh, Other folks that we've not heard from at all. If you have a hand up and we've not heard from you, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Let's see. We'll get the caller at 9029. Uh, Yes. Thank you, Gus. Um, greetings to the callers, greetings to the listeners, and greetings to uh, you, Gus. Um, basically, this is Jay in NYC in Brooklyn. A um, couple of things. Uh, first off, the first black prosecutor. I I have to agree, not really that constructive. Um, we've had a so-called first black president in the office, and we haven't seen any change. Why would this be any different? I just think that's logical. Um, and another thing, um, Steele, uh, I, I definitely agree with you on that as well. I think as everybody else, I do like the song and I, I love being black. I love being black. There's no getting around it. And, um, as I've, as I've been, um, listening to the show, I've been going back. Thank you, by the way, Gus, again, for working on the archives. There've been some episodes that I've missed, um, but you pointed over to Mr. Fox, and he's been definitely uh, putting up a lot of them as well. So that's been very helpful. Um, but on another note, I, uh, I recently had a trip out to uh, California. Um, I'm based on, of course, the East Coast. So this was a trip with my girlfriend. I thought it was extremely constructive. Like I had a, a good time out there seeing different things and, and seeing the culture. Um, very different anybody who's been in new york and then going to california the contrast is immense um especially even dealing with space but the one thing that is consistent 
is definitely racism, white supremacy. I mean, it's out there heavy and it's noticeable. And some people, maybe the ones that I was around at the time, they seemed a little bit confused about some of it more than me, you know, but um, I was still learning, they're still learning, and it was just good to conversate with uh, other non-white people in the different coasts and see their perspectives and their views. And most of them reiterated the same things that we speak about on the show. Um, another thing, um, in Brooklyn here, there was a, a beating of a black woman in a Korean nail salon. Uh, this took place on 1426 Nostrand Avenue. Um, people have been boycotting against this for some time right now. And we've been seeing some, I guess, some people really stand up and start going out saying that we should promote black-owned nail salons. Um, I kind of smiled. I was very glad to see it. It was, to me, an indication of black self-respect and um, us taking a stance. I, I just only hope that it continues and we do go in that direction. Um, as far as um, uh, one last thing, actually, it's uh, more like a question. Um, software de developer, um, I would definitely like to gather some information from you. I'm in the information technology field as well, and I'm looking into going into developing, but for virtual reality. And I uh, was wondering if you could actually give me some info in regards to that or just an advice. Uh, I'd greatly appreciate that. Um, that all being said, I thank you for listening. Um, callers and listeners, and I'll meet my line. Peace. Much obliged, Jay. Thank you for dialing in. Uh, the caller 2425. Did you have commentary, sir, ma'am? Oh, yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, greetings, guys, and to the rest of the callers. I just wanted to comment on some of the audio clips. Uh, the first one being about um, the the black women getting hold of their first shooting, like their first guns. Uh, what do I have to say about that? I am full-on pro with this because I feel like now in this day and age, where every where all of us are just basically a target for white people. It's just facts. Um, I would say that we all should know how to use a gun and just be able to have some type of convenience with it. Just just to know that if we're in that type of if we're in that type of situation, we can always have something like a weapon. Personally, I haven't used a gun before. I highly assuming what it's like according to video games and various movies and all of that sort. So I don't really know how to use a gun hand-on-hand. Uh, hand. So otherwise, I would, approve, I would approve this whole movement because it's really, it would really help us with protection since we don't really have anything else in our, in our setting. And the, the next commentary is about the Google Trends. I, list, I listened to the clip, and I, I remember thinking, oh, I did something like this before. I was playing this game called, um, it was this game, it was this uh, computer game called Google Family Feud. I heard about it from an acquaintance, and I tried it, and it basically had those type of questions. For example, my husband is blank. And some of the most popular answers were based on the most Google searches. And I think the highest one was 
clicked with me when I heard that Google Trends click. And the, another thing I have to say about that is just I find it I find it very entertaining that the most like the most racist jokes to be pulled up on Google has an association with black people or niggas. So I just find that really funny because for one, I have I have tried these jokes before, sometimes consciously, sometimes not. It just comes out out of nowhere, especially when I was younger. But um, just just knowing that you know, now not only are we a target, but we're also a laughing stock to the white community and all the other, some of the other non-white communities. We're just a laughing stock, and I just I find that really. Not amusing, but entertaining just to know that this is happening right now, just to be aware of it. And I'm just, you know, I'm just really glad I got informed of that. But um, thank you for taking my call on the Mute Line. Young scholar in the Bay Area, so glad to hear from you. And I think, I don't know if it's the first, but that is one of the few in the 10 year history of the context of white supremacy. That is one of the very few times the word community has been used in a correct manner on this program priceless the white community black people are a laughing stock and targets of the white community correct usage of the word community fabulous black scholar young scholar in the bay area Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all if you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Oh, please, ladies first. This is caller from the 712. And for the question about voting, if we got questions about voting, we can just look back um, from when we were allowed to vote up until um, right now, to the voting that just happened in, in St. Louis and you know, just look at that. I don't think much will be will be done, but some people will be. They 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 were the first, you know, whatever black first. Some more black first, yay! Um, I want to comment on the dark web. The dark web. I just, if white people wanted to know what was on this so-called dark web, and they probably do. They, I mean, they just they can find this stuff out. So we're supposed to sit here and believe that white folks can't find out who's on the dark web, what's going on. Um, but the college student loan, they, them people, they can find you no matter where you are, but they don't know what's going on on the dark web. I just think racist white supremacists, they could care less about children, what, whatever color they are. They don't care about white children. They don't care about no children. Um, and that's why they refer to their children as baby goats with the kids. You know, baby goats are animals. I just wanted to comment on that. But all of the uh, the clips were, were very informative. So thank you, Gus. I love the way you put it together. Thank, thank you to Mr. Fox for um, uploading things on the Internet. And I'll mute my line. Much obliged. Thank you for your commentary. Uh, the... Male caller who uh, yielded the floor, much obliged for your patience, sir. No problem, no problem. 
this is V from Central New York. Uh, peace to Gus. Peace to all the listeners. And uh, the call is tonight. I missed last week's show. Um, was uh, busy throughout the day and um, had an early morning, so wasn't able to um, stay up late with you. But um, I'm glad to catch a live show tonight. Um, Gus, it, it, I want to first start off by saying that sometimes it amazes me um, the number of things that will be uh, in my mind uh, within a month or so of a show, which then you put those things into the show. Um, I do not say that um, lightly. I, I really mean that. James Brown, ironically, is one of those things. I was listening to him last month and um, was specifically listening to the album, which had um, Black and Proud on it, and was saying to myself that I needed to listen to more of him. There's an interesting story that I recall as a young man about James Brown. My father was a major James Brown fan, had all of his albums, albums, except for um, anything past, I think it was 1980, he was not a fan of. He said James Brown had really changed, and so he didn't buy those. But everything prior to that, he owned in LP form, in vinyl form. And um, when I was about 22 years old, I was talking with one of my white coworkers um, about music, and they mentioned to me that James Brown, the song Black and Proud, which we had not been talking about, but they bought it up um, almost at the end of the conversation, that Black and Proud, the, the chorus, was actually sung by white children, not black children. Now, I have never been able to find any reference to this anywhere else, but the person was adamant and has never taken it back throughout all the years that I have known him. Um, I was hoping that possibly um, I could find some information on that as soon as you played the clip. So I spent about 20 minutes looking for it, but I couldn't. Um, however, I did find an interesting article about that, about Mr. Brown, and um, uh, there's a paragraph in it about that specific song and the impact that it had. Um, from the article, which I'll give the title in a minute, um, they write, Note, uh, nonetheless, notes Brown expert Harry Wanginger, or Wanger, not really sure how to pronounce his last name, uh, quote, that record lost him a big audience. From 65 to 68, he was extremely popular with, this, with his audience getting wider and wider, W-I-D-E-R. Uh, then... He did this album and lost his white audience and never had another top 10 single, unquote. Um, that is from the article Behind the Scenes of James Brown, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Um, that's from an, an interview uh, that he conducted with him and then reflected on. So um, I thought that was interesting that the audience that they were most concerned with was white people when James Brown was singing funk music that was of black origin. Um, 
Your question about black politicians making a difference, um, particularly uh, out of St. Louis, no, will not make a difference, point blank period. Uh, has it made any difference? I lived 45 minutes away from Rochester, New York, where the majority of the city council, the school board, um, the mayor at ver uh, various points was black. The suburbs controlled what they say even up here is the purse strings. They controlled the money. That is a metaphor, I know. But they controlled the money, and the state controlled the rest of the money. And that was always in white hand. And the suburbs always wanted more control over the money and would stop the city from doing things that would be very beneficial to its primary population but wouldn't impact the suburbs in order to force the city to do things which would be beneficial to the suburbs, um, mostly economic things that would enable white people to move further and further into the city and push black people further and further out of the city. Um, so no, I do not believe that'll work. Um, I do note that the uh, prosecutor is a Democrat. I would point everybody to this web to this article, um, if I can quickly find it. There it is. It is called the CIA Democrats, Part One through Three. There's three parts to it. It's from the World Socialist website. Um, I typically try not to reference too many things that sound conspiratorial, but this, the evidence to this is based solely on the records that are provided by the candidates of um, the Democratic Party, and what they found in investigating these individuals is an unusual number of them are from the CIA or the intelligence community and from the military community. So one has to ask why that's happening, why, um, what would be expected if the Democrats take back the House, if they have what they are considering a, um, I think a blue wave or red wave, it's, the colors are kind of intermingling these days. But, um, what, what would come of that? So, thirty seconds. Please check out the. Oh, okay. Please check out the web. Uh, check out the article, the CIA Democrats, Part One through Three. And um, thank you, Gus. As always, um, I will be sending in my donation very shortly. Have a good night. Much obliged. Thank you for your commentary and the support. Uh, if there are folks who have a hand up. Or if you are just on the line and think that you, you know, either have a question or a comment, suggestion, whatever it is, uh, you should go ahead and get your hand up right now or call in 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. Please do not dawdle. Uh, let's go ahead and hear from you now. Do not wait until there are five minutes left and then decide yes. I am ready to speak. Uh, folks, we've not heard from at, at all. Proceed. Can I turn? You can go ahead now. Okay. Thank you. Greetings, Gus. Um, and to all the callers and listeners on the line, I'm trying to 
pull up my notes. I hit the wrong button. Okay, I got them. Um, I thought I heard uh, Thomas in New York say his birthday in about like 25 minutes or so. Um, if that is true, if I heard that right, um, happy birthday to you. Um, it was great to hear from the young scholar um, in, the, in the Bay Area as well. Um, I like to say that uh, Timothy Wise is a homosexual, I think, um, because he got pretty, um, he got very, um, I think, emotional uh, with, with, with his commentary on uh, Dr. Welsing when he said that her work was a uh, pseudoscientific BS because he was referring to, I believe she had said that uh, homosexuality is being used as a weapon by white people toward uh, black people to, um, to, to motivate us to not uh, pro procreate. Um, and I, if I'm not mistaken, her, that is, is not even a, um, a scientific argument. It's like a philosophical one. That being said, um, he made a statement about that it's 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 pseudoscientific BS because there is homosexuality in animals. Well, she's talking about procreation. Unless he can show an animal who procreated through homosexuality, it is scientific. Because where scientifically do you see anyone being able to procreate through homosexuality? You can't. And the procreation was the point that she was making. That that's how it's a weapon. Not for us to just it, it, it's pretty much meaningless if it doesn't really um, prevent procreation. I could be incorrect about all of that, but I don't think so. I also think that he called Justice dumb on that program um, because he said to her that, you know, when he was giving her, um, when he was using a lot of words to, to answer her question and wouldn't answer it directly, he said that I think that you are smart enough and intelligent enough to um, figure out what I'm saying. Not that you... It, so it's like if she's if she's not able to figure out what he said was put on a 14 year old level, even though she was 10 at the time, that not that she like if she if she's if she's not able to figure it out, it's not that she's too young, but that she's too dumb. She's not intelligent enough. As far as electing the um, the attorney, I agree with you know everything everyone has said. I like what um, Ken Steele said. I didn't even think about that, but I definitely think that. It'll most likely be used to um, to 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 get him to do or to to do a lot of harm to us as always, and to have him as the person um, to blame. And I think that white people have think tanks about just how to confuse black people and how to confuse you know non-white people. And I think that this is another example of it. That hey, we got this black guy in here, so you know we're not racist. And even to have, as someone pointed out a long time ago, even to have a justice system, so-called in in a world dominated by racism and white supremacy, that in and of itself is confusion, as well as what uh, Ken Steele said about having Google spend this money about racial bias, even that language lets it be known that that you're you're just um, you're you're not trying to conquer racism or, or eliminate it or any of that. You won't even use the the correct terms or the accurate terms to describe it. I think the male cheerleader thing is um, something to to effeminize uh, black men and, and non-white men. Um, as far as a black-owned nail salon, ultimately the reason why other non-white people are able to do that is because they get those loans. We don't get those loans, and it, I think it doesn't matter how much we, we pick it or we try to promote that or whatever, that white people are still going to prevent us from that. I think that they have, they have shown that, and we just have to um, 
replace white supremacy with justice to correct all those problems, including what happened in Ferguson and everything else. I just have two questions. Gus, can justice be a guest on the show? I know she can't, she can't be like a host anymore because she's busy with college and all that, but would that be possible? And also, do you have a dislocation update? And uh, thanks everyone. Thanks Gus. I'll mute my line. And thanks to the to the man who um, yielded and let me go first. I'll meet my line. A what location update did you say? Dislocation to where they have uh, dislocated you from the flood. Oh, uh, uh, the Jesus. Anyway, uh, justice. She. Uh, I'm not sure about uh, guests. Uh, I can. Ask and see. I will. I will update, and we shall see. Just do justice today. Dot com. Ten years. Context of white supremacy. Yeoman effort from colleague. Just justice. Uh, the. F- uh, I think I said in June, almost jokingly, that I could very well uh, end up completing yoga teacher training and being a certified yoga instructor before uh, anything is resolved with the flood situation. And it looks like that is exactly uh, what is going to happen. No info at all on a return date. This is nearly nine months of being displaced with the flood. Uh, Call in Florida. Did you have commentary, sir? Uh, Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I wanted to start out with the the segment about, I think, the Google trends and the searches on the, the racist jokes. Uh, one small thing on that was, uh, I think it was a portion where he was responding to a question, and I think it was him being asked about the trends of uh, racist jokes and he said he said uh something to the effect that well it's some that are all that are all nice and kind or something like that that are entertaining he used language that was supportive in my opinion i think uh maybe some other people might have called it and then he said the word disturbing as though he's making some kind of uh ranking or like a tier list of racism when the racism in general is just um, unjust and incorrect. I think he was practicing racism with that one. Um, that next segment where I think that was the Young Turks, they were talking about the, the white woman. Uh, it's expected that they're going to have that entitlement and the arrogance. And I, when she was confronted by law enforcement and she used the term, I think, what, clean thoroughbred white girl or something and the, you know the term thoroughbred stood out and I think the, the host he mentioned her coming out of a stable and that animal connotation but I thought that not only that but she meant like I think she meant bred in a way that I, I am white I know the, the code I'm taught I'm groomed in that way of how to uh, be a, a white person which is synonymous with uh, practicing racist behavior. Um, The next one I wanted to share was I read this article on the county website about 
uh, the town of Newberry, Florida. They were, I guess, the first to start this kind of lynching conversation. Um, and uh, the end of the article, it was mentioning about how they didn't want to uh, make a certain list about the the terrorists or the racists who committed these crimes. And I'm quite sure many of us have heard as white men, white women, white children, uh, rejoicing over the death of uh, black people. They didn't want, they didn't want to make a list, compile a list of the racist families that were doing this, but they had no problem listing the victims because, and I'm going to paraphrase the paragraph. It said, well, we didn't want to open any wounds, the metaphor. We didn't want to open any wounds for the, the, uh, the descendants of these families, because even though people aren't here anymore, their families are. And uh, to do that would be, would, would make it go in a reverse direction. I didn't, I didn't really understand like how, like how that was worded, how that was articulated, but it said it was said by Gail Watson. I couldn't tell if that was a white person or not. Uh, and uh, that's all I have to share right now. And thanks for allowing me to speak. Thanks, Pastor. It would make it go in a reverse direction. Make what go in a reverse? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, man, uh, make it clear. Uh, if we're talking about racism, white supremacy, and especially in my view, just anytime when you start hearing things like that, where it's just not logical at all. And this is the justification that's being given for not identifying race soldiers, practicing racism. Get to that really, really quick so I can make a, a conclusion and, in my view, an accurate assessment of what's taking place. Uh, codified software developer in Wisconsin. Did you have commentary? You should be with us, ma'am. Uh, yes. Good evening, Gus. Sorry for getting my hand up so late. Wasn't sure if I wanted to commentary, uh, com comment tonight. Um, and good evening to all the listeners and callers. Um, so there is a black male running for governor in Wisconsin right now. And I was having a conversation with um, a victim, another victim of racism, also classified as black, black female last night. And we were talking about, she was talking about how she met him and how he was very arrogant and how he had an attitude of, well, I'm black, so I know you'll vote for me. And I said, well, he's, that's probably not an inaccurate statement, right? Because we've been conditioned to see black people running for office as a good thing, even though there's puppet masters behind this. I'm sorry, not puppet. I'm sorry, that's a, that's a metaphor. Uh, even though there are people who are white supremacists who are behind this person in making the decisions. Um, and so I was talking to her about that and she argued that Obama was a great thing in the White House. And I said, how so? And she said, well, because black children can see a black person in the White House and they can aspire to be that way. And I said, well, I'm sure it was nice the, during the in, initial inauguration, but then after all the death threats and the, uh, 
the constant criticism, including from a great deal of black people. I'm sure that Obama's presidency didn't seem so aspirational. Um, so that's really all I have in order in, in answer to that question that you asked before. No, I don't think that it's constructive. And history has taught us that usually when black people are elected, um, become elected officials in certain areas, they then, those areas are then targeted with uh, severe oppression, severe racism, and severe economic terrorism. With that, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, codified software developer. Uh, let's see. The caller 4717. Did you have commentary? Yes. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Gus, uh, callers and listeners. Uh, first, wanted to comment on the uh, dark web clip. <clears throat> These these people eat, drink infant blood, bathe in infant blood. They don't care anything about children. And that's why they have pedophilia as a disorder in um, the DSM. They feed off of children. Well, I'm sorry, that's a metaphor, but they, they um, use children um, as they wish in every single way. So, no, they don't care about them. Secondly, uh, to answer the question, uh, today's question, I don't think this man is going to be able to do very much in the form of uh, anything being constructive. Because, again, like some of the other, the other callers said, he will simply be their Obama. Something to confuse us, distract us, um, and make us feel as though we have some sort of power when, in reality, we don't. And as um, someone else mentioned, of course he will be uh, used to lock up as many black people as he can. So, yes, they will use him. But we have to think about it. These people, these racist white supremacist people, they don't work on one step at a time. They're already 10 steps ahead. So even though we're looking at it, asking the question, is he going to be able to do anything constructive? They already know exactly what they're going to use him for. We are just waiting to see. And the last thing I wanted to say was uh, earlier in the call, you mentioned hashtag weeping white woman. I'm going to add to that and say something that I so often say, hashtag white woman tears. Thank you for taking my call, guys. Much obliged, much obliged. A fan of the alliteration, but long as it gets the point across, uh, did is there anyone that we missed completely anybody who has a hand up that we did not get to hear from at all grand think we nabbed everybody i do not see uh any uh stray hands i don't think yes got everybody uh did anybody have any uh, extra thought or question they needed to get in the last three, four minutes before we get ready to wrap things up. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, this is Gio again. And to answer that question, uh, I believe Chicago um, has had or does have the most 
black elected officials and uh, the state of Chicago in itself. Uh, we have one of the highest unemployment from uh, 18 to 24. Um, uh, a lot of people act right now, they're, they're saying that uh, most sides with a majority of black people um, have, uh, are in debt based on parking tickets. Right now, um, the average is $3,000 in parking tickets. That's the average. Um, so, and gentrification, of course, and, and police brutality. And that's with the, all the black elected officials. So I don't think, and, and home of um, Obama, President, uh, former President Obama. So I don't think um, nothing will be done. And uh, I'll, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Mm. Folks, remember Harold Washington? We talked about him. Uh, in the book club, Leonida McLean, first black mayor of Chicago, uh, had an influence on uh, former President Obama. Since I have a moment, I can get in uh, briefly my one yoga incident for the week, where I actually can give you a twofer. Black females in the class, so she had one as well. We had to do our volunteer uh, project yesterday as a part of our yoga class. So we went to a facility, it's like a women's shelter in the middle of downtown Seattle. Uh, we were supposed to be there for like three hours, four hours yesterday. Uh, so we get there and we're supposed to be like sorting food and putting packages together and such. Anyway, uh, I get there and it's myself, non-weeping white woman. Uh, she's in teacher training. Uh, she and like two other white guys were sorting like bagels or whatever it is and they send another box and it's just like full of candy and so we're trying to make like a separate box that's just got like candy stuff in it so i looked on the top and they have these like uh gourmet gummy bears they're like ten dollars for a package um and i was like oh wow i just saw those those are like the upscale uh really really good gummy bears they're kind of expensive but they're really good the suspected racist white woman says, uh, oh, we better check your pockets before you leave, and immediately I said, now see, can't even talk about gummy bears. We talked about food before. Can't even talk about gummy bears uh, without it getting to criminal. Negro's about to steal something. Can't bring them in here. Now, within five minutes, white man comes over. He works uh, at the volunteer facility. White man comes over. He doesn't talk about it. He is about it. He snatches the gummy bears and puts them in his own little travel box. And he's, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I was just on my fast and I have a craving for some sugar. Yes, I'm going to eat the gummy bears. Now, nobody said, you know, get the handcuffs, shackle him, 911, uh, Seattle, they got consent decree. No one said any of that. It was all giggles. Eat the gummy bears. Gus T just, I didn't say anything about eating the gummy bears. Vegan, proud, not even on my diet. Just commented that they do have some rather upscale food items and it's immediately tase him, search him at the yoga studio. Part two, black female uh, who is there. We didn't arrive at the same time. I was downstairs already. She was at the front uh, front entrance. Uh, you had to like buzz on the intercom to get into the facility. So she says she buzzed and they when I buzzed, they just opened the door and I came on down. Uh, apparently when she buzzed that didn't happen so like two or three other people i guess responded finally someone got on the intercom and was like you know i'll be there hold your horses it was kind of rude about it so uh 
female comes down. I think it was a suspected racist, but I wasn't there. Uh, you know, I was being told this after the incident took place. So she says this woman comes down and she opens the door and hops in front of her. Now there's a shelter among other facilities all in the same building, but there is a shelter, women's shelter. And so this woman comes out and hops in front of her like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Where are you going? Do you have an appointment? We're not, we're not just giving out, you know, food and resources here. What are you doing? And she's like, dang, I came here to, to volunteer. And she's like, really? Do you have an appointment? And she says, I signed up, you know, online. It's supposed to be the, the woman's shelter. And she says, uh, hmm. And she, <laughs> she kind of looks at her like, uh, hmm. Okay. And so the black female, she's like, you know, what, 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 all the attitude, like, I'm just trying to go in and volunteer. And she says, the woman looks at her and says, you too, I don't need your attitude. <laughs> gets really hostile with her. And again, this is a volunteer project. This is called our karma project that we're doing here and accused of stealing gummy bears and accosted even trying to enter the facility. Any other folks have commentary they want to make sure they got in before we conclude? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, this is the from Central New York. Um, Gus, I I saw it in the um in the code book, page two hundred one. When someone talks to you about black leaders, say the following: "Quote during the existence of white supremacy, there is no such person as a black leader." There are only black spokespeople. Unquote. Page 201. I knew I saw it in there. That should answer the question about this district attorney or any other black politician who is now being promoted um, to the level of office in this society. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Much obliged. ProduceJustice.com. If folks need a word guide code book, Produce Justice. Dot com. Uh, we have time for one more comment, question. Uh, anybody else have anything they needed to get in before we conclude? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, this is just a um, software developer in Wisconsin. I was just trying to see if I could um, just maybe just get some information in what regards you think about virtual reality. Um, I'm aware, obviously, your background, but it would... Um, would definitely like to exchange emails. Um, if Gus, you could accept, um, help out with that, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, I can email you later on. Until justice at gmail.com. Uh, Grant, I will assume for sure. I will assume folks are satisfied. Uh, if you are interested, going to be in the Seattle area, you can hit, uh, just drop me an email, I reckon, to get the time and all of that. But you can come take a free yoga class. I will be teaching the entire 60-minute class. It is free. Uh, you can frolic in the city uh, if you're going to be in town for the weekend or the day or whatever it is. But uh, it, in my view, would be an exercise of counter-racism because I am trying to offset uh, the number of whites at the class. We had to do a practice uh, teaching round a couple days ago and myself and the black female that's in uh, teacher training with me, we were the only people to bring non-whites to the training. We brought the only black people to the class. I think it was like 20 
people in the class or so, but we brought the only black people to the class. So I am trying to offset that to make sure that that is not the case uh, when I have to teach. So if nothing else, I would be very grateful uh, if you have a free 60 minutes this coming Friday and will be in the Seattle area. Come take free yoga class. If you have the counter racist t-shirt, even better, wear your t-shirt for the class. That said, uh, much obliged to all the folks who uh, tuned in, participated this evening. I hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, we will be back uh, in the middle of the week. You can check Black Talk Radio Network, the Facebook page for updates uh, for the next broadcast time. If you have questions, gripes, uh, guest suggestions, uh, feel free, again, drop an email until justice at Gmail. Dot com. Uh, I would strongly encourage folks to get out from exercise. We talked about that. I think exercise is important uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy, I think can help uh, deal with some of the stress uh, and mental health issues that are brought on by racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, get some exercise, get out, enjoy that sunshine. Uh, but even if you're going to do so, you still need to be, we still need to be codified. Racists do not stop just because it is summer. Uh, let's make sure we are sober under conditions of white terrorism. They said in Tennessee they had a project of domestic white terrorism. Under such conditions, I think you want to be able to make tremendous decisions. They said they were snatching Negras and making them walk on a bed of nails to solicit information. I do not think you want to be intoxicated under those types of conditions. Dr. Welsing, many of the folks that we esteem would strongly encourage, let's be sober, let's take excellent care of our brain computers, our bodies, so that we can, uh, can make phenomenal decisions to solve the problem, the system of white supremacy. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up each and every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Let us do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. In fact, before we conclude, there was a racist joke. I remembered one of our white cows guests did share. I think it was from the book, Everyday Language of Racism, 2012 white woman no less the racist joke that she shared the religion of white supremacy in the joke it was how do you know that adam and eve couldn't be black because a nigger can't just eat one rib cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim <sighs> I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. 
Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>